But my dad would always tell me, if you're ever in a fight at school, you pick up the nearest thing and f*** it over their head. Started doing little robberies. I got caught with an open razor. I think 13, 14. I was a gambling addict. Loved the coke, loved the weed. Taking Valium at that stage in my 20s. Guns or knives? Both. Both. Family members stabbed to death and shot, shot dead. Friends shot, stabbed. My dad got diagnosed with leukemia while I was in prison. My uncle was murdered. When I got out of prison, I had two girls pregnant at the same time. My best pal hung himself, all in the space of fucking six months. So that's when I couldn't handle life. A couple of hours passed, I had a vodka. Bang. Went missing for a year. I fucked it. No matter if you're an addict, no matter if you're in prison, no matter if you're in an abusive relationship, you can change anything in your life that you want to, but it takes time. It takes fucking guts, it takes courage, it takes everything that you have in your fucking soul. It was meant to be one of my questions as we go along, but because I've got it out now, this book, The Power of Now, impacted your life in a, in a profound manner, didn't it? Yeah. That was the one, mate. That was the game changer. Coming from a life of chaos and misery and just madness, the power of now. But I was seeing a girl and I was off the drink and the drugs then. I think I was like 29. I was off it all. I was off everything. I was nine months off it. We were so-called in love. We were going to get a nice little house. Um, so she never seen the James on the drink or the drugs or the gambling because I was clean living. I'd changed my way of thinking, sort of. We were going to get a flat. Like, it wasn't even a flat, it was a nice cottage house. Nice cottage house out in the sticks. We're thinking we'll get dogs, maybe have a couple of kids. Life will be good. So we got this cottage, I had to pay deposit, and we're supposed to move in like two days before. So like, I don't know what it was, self-sabotage, scared. Had the perfect missus, everything going great. Went to the bookies, spunked all the money, spunked the deposit, done everything. Told her with guilt, hoping that, yeah, everything will be fine. She fucking left. Never seen her again, never spoke to her again. She left that book in my bed, The Power of Now, it can't tell. I thought, fuck that. Took me a few months to read it. And uh, when I did read it, I thought, this is boring. Got the audiobook. He's a boring bastard. He's very soft-spoken. You hear little bells, bing. I kept falling asleep. Never read a book, ever. Read it, listened to the audiobook, changed my way of thinking. I understood that I could make changes. I understood living in the present moment. I understood that I was living in the past. Full of fucking guilt, full of fear, full of depression, full of anxiety, pretending to be something that I was not. That book then just opened my horizons and then here we are nearly 10 years later just smashing the ass out of life. <laughs> I'm laughing because when you when you told me about the power of now, I'm not a reader, as you can see. I've still not, I've, it's, it's took me eight months yeah. to get 86 pages in, but I started with the audio book mm -hmm. and you did say, Liam, he's a boring cunt. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll roll with it. But fuck me, he's so bad. <laughs> it, it was so yeah. boring that I couldn't continue. So I actually, he made me bought a book. But that's outrageous. I mean, that's an unbelievable story. So you had all your life set up. You had your future there or what you thought was going to be a future. You dropped the ball massively. And she left you yeah. and left you this book for you to to dwell on, yeah, contemplate and consider. Yeah, and I always thought, nah, because I don't read. I thought, fuck it, it's just another one. But <clears throat> my girlfriends would always come back. So when I was in a life of madness and chaos, I was a fuck up. I was a loser, man. I was a pretender, a great actor, pretending that I was something. I was still staying in my mum's house. I was a gambling addict. Loved the coke, loved the weed, taking Valium at that stage in my 20s. Just... I was a pretender, but then I changed and then I met her and I thought, this is it. 
but that's when the first time I'd felt, when I look back now, the self-sabotage, when life's going good, I didn't think I deserved it. I don't deserve this. So I just ripped the whole ceiling down, started gambling, she left, then on the drink and the drugs for a bit again. We're going to go through all of that. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know you said that they they normally come back. Mm -hmm. Did you think to yourself, this book, that's the, that's the old hairbrush trick. She's left that there yeah. so she can come back for it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you didn't read it. Not realising that was the one thing that completely transformed my life. That book, The Power of Now, understood. I never had any guidance or role models to take me through life. People used to say about the drink, the drugs, but when you're in your 20s, you feel as if you know everything. I just tell people to fuck off. Maybe not at their face, but behind their back when they walked away, mm. I give them the finger and say, shut up, you mug. So that was the one thing, the one positive thing in my life that made sense at that time. And you've never seen her since? Never. What was her name? Louise. What do you say to Louise now for leaving that yeah, book? I just say thank you, Henry. That's unbelievable. Like that, People come in and out of your life and see either for a lesson or a blessing. She was clearly there for a blessing, but it broke her heart as well. Because I was full of the big ideas and the bright future. That's why when we spoke earlier in the living room, I keep my cards close to my chest. Back then I would tell everybody everything. So people bought into my bullshit. Even though I never had a pot to piss in. I've done a lot of bad things to get the money, but I never had a pot to piss in. So when um, she kind of bought into the dream, I'd sort of, we'll get this big house and we'll have dogs and the babies. But I never truly believed it because I didn't know where to start. I'd never worked a day in my life. So it was uh, she bought into it. And then she left that book and it just it opened everything up. Well, it changed your life. I struggle with living in the present and I can't get past the present when I pick this book up. So anyone out there that's living in the past or the future or you're struggling in your current situation, it's good enough for us. It's good enough for you. The power of now. Yeah. Now, James. <laughs> thank you for coming on yeah, anytime my boy i've been looking forward i've been looking forward to you coming on from the very moment i come on yours and i just i admired the whole process and you from that moment so now we're gonna reverse the roles and i'm gonna ask you all about your life and i cannot wait to hear all about it because as much as i know of you there's still things that i don't know that i'm interested in so you grew up in glasgow yeah and from what I know, your parents were together, sound. They weren't dysfunctional. You come from a good family, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, million percent. Yeah, my mum and dad. We grew up in a place called Postle Park. It's one of the most deprived areas in the UK. You don't know it at that time. It's just, it's like a football stadium. It's all houses around it. Um, the close, it was like a close we live in. It's like six people, six houses in it. We had... Um, Georgie and Jimmy next door, and then it was Jean. She ended up moving to London with the McAllisters and the Stirrets. Just you could go to people's door and ask for like a sign. You never had much then, so I would go to friends' houses, get pieces and jam, pieces and butter, kind of just out in the back garden. It's not like a big, massive garden inside these tenement houses, and you're out till like ten at night, eleven at night, and just it was. When you look back, obviously it was madness. Because I, I ended up, I loved setting fires. I became a little. Uh, fire starter just to set all the bins in fire and then I used to phone the fire brigade and then when they used to put the fires out when they were driving away we used to call it a hudgy we used to jump behind and jump on them while they were driving down the street like madness like five and six years of age it was fucking crazy my school was next to it St Cuthbert's uh, yeah my mum and dad then listen they struggled they struggled like any family from Porso there was a lot of good families there there's a lot of good people there you've just not got that 
You've not got anything to really work on. There's no role models. Everybody's a drug dealer, a, a shoplifter, or they try and do what they do just to keep their head above water. Nobody's got much. The people who had much was the drug dealers, but when you look back now, they're obviously destroying lives to benefit their own, but they don't know that then. Mum and dad worked. My dad became a bouncer. My mum worked in Monroe Click, which is like a... She used to develop the photos in Saracen Street. Um, yeah, went to school. Life was good. We never had much. Used to go to school with the shit clothes. And my parents were stable, though. Listen, when they had fights and they were drinking or parties that back then, that was normal. We had the family members in. I've got photos back in the day with cigarettes in the mouth and holding a, like a shandy. Used to pull it with lemonade and beer. Back then, it was it was normal for kids to be fucking drinking the froth out of the can or drinking beer. It was, it was mad, but... Um, Some fire things. Yeah, so the, the, the fire start was, <laughs> I just loved that. Loved that. I loved the smell, but they used to give me into so much trouble because I used to come back with like buns in my, my, my trousers. Uh, I just loved that. Yeah, that was my thing, setting fires to the bins and then just had a lot of good friends there. What do you think that was? It was a little escape. But yeah, maybe built out aggression, but I was never an angry kid. I was a good kid. I do daft shit, but then. We used to stand on the stairs in one of these, so when cars used to drive by, we used to throw stones and try and smash the windows like we were proper. When you look back, we we're proper fucking lost kids. But that was just normal. It was the only way to get fun. There was no football pitches. There was no boxing clubs. There was nothing really like that where I was from. You had Western Common Flats. had a red ash pitch. Um, but I just loved football as well. We used to play out football out the back. We used to build a goal, silver cage. Used to get like three fences, stick to and put one at the top and play football all night. Again, when we phoned the fire brigade, we used to steal the, like the key to turn on the fire hydrants for the summer. It was just crazy. There was a lot of stolen cars. We stayed next to a, a place called the 226 Crew. That was the the building next to mine. Just full of fucking nutcases. I was a couple of years younger. My uncles were mad. They would always come up. It was always stolen clothes or whatever they were up to. It was just... Yeah, we were a solid family as well. My mum and dad weren't junkies, they weren't alcoholics. They tried to do what they could with that. All my other friends were single parents and their mums were struggling, their dads were struggling with addiction. I, never, I had a luxury with those parents and I'm blessed to have those parents. I used to always think, fuck me, it was tough growing up there. But looking back, I learned a trade. From Stonyhurst Street, we moved to 50 yards to a place called Clarence Street. It was like red tenement buildings, which is kind of an upgrade which is only just 50 yards away, but it just, it kept us away from the environment I was. So that just extra little 50 yards made a big difference to my life. And then I moved to a place called Hamilton Hill, which was another 50 yards just behind that. So my mum's still in that house. So you're talking 40 years later, but that made a big difference to my life as well. Just it was little steps away from that life. But then football career came 10 years old. Just loved it. Football was my my getaway. It was my freedom. I was I was amazed. I was rapid. I played for a team called Postal YM, and I was fucking class. I'm not gonna hear it blow my trumpet, even though I do it all the time. But I was 50, 60 goals a season. I was just rapid. I had a little bit of fire about me. I had a bit of dig. What a team! I'd I'll give the boys a mention from Big James Proctor, Greg Mulligan, Johnny Clark. God rest his soul. He passed away in a car crash. Had we Ryan Bradford, boy called Leachy, my big pal Barry Peacock. Just tough boys, man. We beat everybody. We were unbelievable. Celtic Rangers, Chelsea, Tottenham, Hibs were all looking at us. And then Hibs came in for me and I, and I went to Hibs at 12. Just going back to your dad, because I want to come on to, onto your football years and how you would 
use that to your advantage when copping hold of a bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but was your was your dad because you said he worked the door? Yeah. Was he a tough guy? Yeah. It's a tough, solid man. It was respected. Everybody loved him. It was very respected. Not a aggressive man. He could handle himself. My dad trained back then. You're talking eighties, not many. He used to go to a g the gym. I think it was Olympic. It was called back then. And then it was a place called Marcos. Big, handsome man, strong. Everybody just kept in good shape. So when he worked the doors, he was solid, handsome. And because he grew up in the area I was, Posso, everybody knew him. Posso was a rough area. All your Glasgow tough men are for there. Glasgow's a tough area anyway. There's, there's gangsters everywhere, but Posso was always, it led from the front of the fucking tough bastards who were there. So my dad knew them. Very well respected. And uh, yeah. But again, as we go later on, that was my downfall, him being a bouncer. If you're a bouncer in Glasgow, especially back in the day, if you weren't tough, you'd get eaten. But pure and simple, wouldn't you? You'd, yeah. be, you'd be in Syria. You couldn't pretend to be a tough guy like a lot of people do now. You yeah. had to be the part if you wanted to work the door yeah. in somewhere like Glasgow. Back then, you were getting beat the fuck out of. Guys were getting took out the back and beat to near death back then. You can get away with it. It was allowed. So if you weren't, the people knew who, the, who was who back then used to get your crews from different areas who used to walk down and if you're the respected you'd get in listen if you're causing trouble the bouncer would say look you need to leave the coppers are coming but if you were a fucking idiot trying to cause trouble and you didn't listen you would get fucking lettered you would get beat the fuck out of victoria's the savoy the bouncers didn't mess about they could all handle themselves a lot of them are full of steroids my dad was never steroids but a lot of the other bouncers were just massive you're talking back then they're just next level they were just ruthless and that's why a lot of people became bouncers because they could use that violence and beat people up for and get away with it did your dad have that ruthless streak in him yeah when he, when he could switch it on yeah mm. yeah i was did, scared of him yeah did you ever see him dish out hiding yeah 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 many times man from a, when you were young yeah 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 he was tough man weighing in a, another adult obviously. yeah 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 when you when you saw your dad beat another man up at a young age do you remember how it made you feel yeah i was scared yeah i was scared man mm. I, I didn't like it because i thought fuck man and you, you and it was pointless as well it was like a road rage kind of thing you know what i mean and then you, you turn and you're screaming in the car and i always remember that as well it was, i used to think why are you shouting and part of me is then that becoming ingrained in me through the years we should get in road rage. i don't do it now making changes but i had that in my like teens and 20s i think why the fuck am i shouting it's obviously when you start changing you go why am i giving somebody else energy but he was always beating horns or driving fast or going on the other side of the lanes to and i'm thinking what the fuck is going on and you're screaming dad slow down slow down but that's just at that stage where all right we realize he's fucking he's a good guy but when he switches man he could he did lose it and then you see him fucking beating fuck out with something you're scared you're crying you don't like it it's not normal to see for kids. No, I mean, as you know, I've I've witnessed very similar scenes. And when you're young, a man's voice, it's frightening when it's raised. Mm -hmm. It seems a hell of a lot louder than it does now. I mean, now we can go to a football match and listen to 100 people scream and shout. It doesn't affect us. But yeah. when you're young and you're fragile and your eardrums aren't used to that aggression and you see it, especially for the first time, it's, uh, it is frightening. Mm-hmm. But my dad would always tell me, if you're ever in a fight at school, you pick up the nearest thing to you and fuck it over their head. I never done that. I didn't like that. I still don't like violence. I don't like anger. I can portray that image sometimes when I switch, but it's an act and it gets me down. I'm a soft guy. So if I lose it, I, I want to apologise. I just want to cuddle that person. Or, that's not my 
intentions. So I'm seeing my dad do that. It never made me become aggressive. It never made me want to fight. I didn't like. I didn't like it. It made me softer. If I'm honest, even at schools and that, there used to always be fights and people used to, because I never had cousins or brothers, like a lot of other people at school. So when there was a fight, you were you were always ganged up on. So it was difficult. But if I had a fight and I heard my dad's name, I would flip and become that guy who I'd seen my dad become. Did you fight much? In schools, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I hated it. I always get scared doing it. What sort of level of violence did you take it to? Nah, just fighting, just fighting. Fisticuffs? Yeah, handbags. In primary schools you're chasing them they're chasing you it was nothing heavier like knives and throwing chairs until secondary that kind of kicked in you know like it is now everyone if, nowadays if you're not carrying a knife as a youngster yeah. you know you, you you're out the loop yeah fucking fright especially at glasgow yeah. as well i didn't like it i hated that I hated any sort of violence i hated the thought of having to fight somebody at three o'clock when the bell went we'll fight and i hated that i hated the feeling it fucked me up all day and then you feel as if you have to do it. So moving on to football then, because football was still at a young age when you started, yeah. weren't it? So we're, we're still we're still very much at yeah. the start at the start of your life. So good good household, good yeah. family values. Sounds like your dad was a good role model. I think it's good to have someone strong in the background. You know that you can't fuck around with. Yeah. Uh, but then obviously there's a stage where you spiraled. So it obviously you didn't spiral from within the household you must have spiraled from your outside influences oh. glasgow being yeah rough and ready yeah and full of drugs mm -hmm. but then you would have thought maybe football would have kept you on the straight and narrow so yeah talk talk about your your football career how it started and then the journey yeah Porsche ym was a there was a team like we were ruthless we were strong all the kids under 11s under 12s under 13s all the way up Porsche ym i don't know if it was fear because it was such a tough area but we were just unbelievable. We were just the kids, and that's what that's what's the sad thing about it. Because there was kids in that team who were all equally just as good and could have went on and kicked on to be one of Scotland's greatest. That's how good these kids were. They were they were free. They were away from any bad stuff at 10, 11 years older. But when we played football together, it was like an escape. It's like you've not got the pain. A lot of these kids are going back to the alcoholic mother or father. Um the fucking hostile household, not got much, but we were together, it was a team. We fucking just run, we won the leagues, we won the cups, we were just mad. And then I realised I had a talent, I realised how fast I was. I just fucking loved it. I loved playing football, it was every day. We used to play Celtic Rangers in the chapel at Saracen Street. We used to get a mixture of people and play Celtic Rangers every day, every night. That's all I could think of. I just loved football. The first time I felt good at anything, the first time I was shit at school, I'd look out the windows, I didn't even know my times table, I used to feel embarrassed, if I had to go and read a story, or they'd tell me to read a paragraph, my face would go red and I, I fucking hated it, I felt as if my world was crumbling down and I, I hated going to school because I realised I'm not good at this. The football for me was a getaway, it was amazing, Hibs came in for me, I went for a trial through in Edinburgh, they sent me straight away, 12. And then we started, but I was injured, my groin was sore, but I kept playing through it because I didn't want to miss the opportunity. Um, and we just played season after season and then played against Celtic at Peters Hill. I think it was 2-1 or 2 each. I came on as sub. My dad says, oh, you sub today, son. And the manager said, it's a secret, it's a secret weapon. And I uh, came on, ran a mock, ran the show. And then I scored a hat trick the next week against St. Johnston and a hat trick against Hearts the next week. And that's when... The, the big team Celtic wanted to sign as my dad said no son sign for Hibs 
signed for Hibs at 15 S form. Um, but while I signed S form, the hormones are kicking in. And I always say this, and I get slated for it, but I was a handsome bastard. Um, <laughs> I, my dad was very smart as well. He used to wear the suits, the ties. He was always presented himself well. But that's when uh, David Black, who he played with Hibs, he ended up in prison with, I think he was scamming women for alarms or whatever it is. But it was me and him. He played centre mid, I played up front. And uh, we're a couple of rogues. I think it was 14, actually. We went to Penelope's nightclub drinking, I think it was Smirnoff Ice's back in, and that's when I got a taste for nightlife, that's when I got a taste of drink, that's when I got a taste of women giving me attention, that's when I got a taste of pretending I was playing for the first team or I was playing for Hibs, later on in years I was pretending to play for Man United, always pretending to be something that I wasn't, even though I was still good enough with what I had at that moment, but I never had anybody to tell me to raise my confidence, to say you are good enough, and if I had the mindset that I've got now, fuck me, it would be a different ball game, because I understand now consistency is key, and as 14 and 15 came, I started the night club life and then my dad has been a bouncer. Victoria is the hot spot in the city. All the football players went, any big shows like the wrestling, all the wrestlers would go and it was just, it was a fucking place, man. And that's when I started to really spiral. Do you remember the first, the first significant session where you lost complete control, but also in the same breath thought, I like this feeling of being out of control. Yeah, but I was already coming out of control. Once I hit secondary school, I was becoming out of control because we used to have a place called uh, Eddie Stobart's and it had John Menzies, but we used to start breaking into that at 11, maybe younger than that. Um, I was always up to no good. I was always a conniving little cunt. Like, I was always like causing trouble, the setting the fires or getting onto building sites. And I was always up to no mischief. I was always... John Menzies was, when it started, used to again break into the truck, steal the Coca-Cola, steal the water. It's minor, but you're still thinking, hmm, that's when it kind of starts. You start getting, breaking into these fences and people going, nobody will do it. But I would step to the forefront and then try and lead. But you're just leading. It's like the, the blind leading the blind because we don't know what we're doing, but we're in there. And then I was maybe get caught. You don't get jailed that time, so they're just driving you back to your mum and dad's. But I just loved that. Up to no good. The, ste the, the stealing. Yeah, I fucking loved that. Eddie Stobart's was prime example. We used to try and get in every night, open the back of the truck, steal the water, and it was like cans of juice. And then there was like magazines and John Menzies. So we'd try and sneak under the trucks, to go under the gates. And I just loved that. I loved it as if, oh, this is amazing. I used to think I could sell all these magazines and sell these cans and make some money. And it was just madness. And then in secondary school was the trouble started as well. That's when I realised, wait a minute, I'm not a fucking idiot. I, could, I started... He wasn't even fighting because he's fighting first year, but then you kind of fizzle out who's the ones, the bad ones and the good ones. So I was, we were always at the back of the class. It was foundation, I think then. So it was a daft class. We were just full of clowns carrying on, sitting out the side of the class. And then when I signed for Hibs, but that, Hibs always was my saving grace because I knew I played football. I felt as if it could get me away with much more mm -hmm. than what it should. So started doing little robberies. I got caught with an open razor. I think 13, 14. Um, and I was fucked then because I'd already in little bits of trouble before that but then the social workers come and they're thinking about listen man he's cutting about with a fucking big open razor he's been trying to rob somebody he's caught with this um, they took the fingerprints and that and then I had the social workers coming but that was at 14 
And that's when I thought, man, like they were talking about putting, it's not like a children's home, it's like fucking. Like a young offender center. Yeah, but it was like, it was, it was a weird, and it was like Bishop Briggs, man, my mum and dad's like, what you fucking hell, what, what are you playing at? Like, you've got the football career, but it was all, that was always my get out. Played for Hibs, listen, he's playing for Scotland school, boys like you can do, amazing. But that was the one where they thought, right, fuck me, like there's some serious issues here. The guy, Bull, who I worked with at Hibs, he'd always try and look after me. You know, I was a great player, but they, I think they could see that something was quite, something was amiss. So they'd spoke to the social workers and kind of says, look, because Hibs were at that stage as well. Great player, but he's too hot to handle because I was getting sent off against Rangers and stuff. That was like, I was a, grew up a Celtic fan. So yeah, that was like the rival Celtic Rangers. So when they played them, they used to call me like a fucking chukter or sheep shagger. And I'm thinking, I'm not from Edinburgh, I'm fucking Glasgow as well. So I end up sticking the head in someone and I get sent off. So that, again, all at 14, but I was drinking then as well. So I was starting to lose it because my my ability got me so far. Um, but my dedication was slitting and players who were below me at the time started playing better than me. So I started getting angry and then I was getting angry that I was fucking up. Uh, Hibs was my saving grace for not getting took away. But the alcohol came, man, that was just a different ball game. That just made me feel alive. When I'd see my dad fighting or other people fighting, I hated that. It gave me anxiety. So the drinking kind of suppressed everything. So everything started to decline from 14. And that's when things started. When I started the nightclubs, it just went fucking worse. How old were you when you was getting into nightclubs? How old? Mm, I was about 16. 14, but my dad being a bouncer was 15. Victoria's. And he didn't mind it because he was there. But I still, I'll get to the toilet and maybe t drink a fucking tan of drink. But then it, he'd end up leaving as well. But by that time, I knew all the bouncers. So I used to walk down. You're talking, the queue was away around the corner. I used to walk down the front. Plus, I wore suits then. All my friends were hanging about the street. I was wearing suits, going to nightclubs, telling the birds I played for the first team for Hibs. It was fucking easy for me. Plus, I had a bit of part about it. I was a little bad boy pretending to be. Um, so I had all that there. I had... Something that, and it was just a, the attraction of the women as well. Fuck me, that was just another level. I just loved that. Something in a nightclub and the music, I just loved that. Mm. I, did, I just wanted to be there every night. I started to hate football, something that I'd loved from a young kid. Something that I, I lived and breathed. Something I thought I was going to be the best at. I'd visualise then, scoring in big stadiums. I didn't know the law of attraction then, but I'd visualise doing all this. But my love soon came to... The women and the drink and then the drugs at 16. How many women do you think you slept with in your teens? Oh. In your in your nightclubbing years? You're talking well over a hundred mm. for that a young age, for that age, because I was active since 13, 14. But the nightclub just was a different ball game. I just loved to drink. All I wanted to do after a game was go to the pub and drink. Plus the gambling was kicked in at that stage. Looking back at the gambling was already started from ages of four and five. My uncles and aunties used to go to a place called Largs. There was little fruit machines, but it was little, little horses. You used to put money in. And I used to you pick a colour. And I fucking loved it. My dad used to take us to Shawfield, which is a dog track, not realising the destruction that would cause in later years. So I had all this in the back that I'd loved, the mm. gambling. That was always there. I used to play chippy at school. Loved it. I used to go home. I never eat lunch sometimes because I was fucking gambling. It was mad. That all the gambling was the one. That was the 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 main one through the years that was a catalyst. But the, the rest were all there. The gambling's the one that intrigues me the most. And now that you're now that you're 
you're laying it out and with the timeline, it's clear that you was addicted to the dopamine hit from yeah. from, from the get-go. Mm -hmm. If you're getting a buzz off the gambling, the fires, the mischief, the scoring the goals, the women, it's all been there. Mm -hmm. But see, drink and drugs, womanizing, biting, clubbing, scoring goals, I totally can understand the addiction there and, and food. We can go on to that. So I know if something's Moorish, because I'm an addict, I'll keep going back for more and more and more and more until whatever it is, until it makes me ill. I understand porn addiction, all of it, but I've never been able to understand gambling. I mean, it's sort of similar beast. It's dopamine, but I just, I can't get my head around. I suppose you exchange money for a substance that gives you an immediate buzz and it takes you somewhere. Anything else you would say I can relate to, but the gambling one, I can't. Like, how would you describe that aside from the other addictions? Gambling was the worst because I would fuck anybody off just to gamble. I would drop, steal, borrow, just had a bet on. The gambling was always, like I say, you never had money, your teens, but I would do, try and do bad shit to maybe get money to then place a bet because you could get into the bookmakers back then, 13, 14, 15, you could place bets, you could put a coupon on. I just loved it. I fucking loved the gambling. When I, Hibs released me, I think it was away to Queen's Park. Hibs says, look, we've had enough. We'll give you too many chances. I'd have, if I went to Celtic, I might have had better guidance. Um, being in Edinburgh, away from the home, family, it was different. So he wanted me to sign for Hibs. And uh, yeah, and then obviously when that career went, I got released to Albion Rovers. The gambling started then. We used to get, I don't know if it was 70 quid or 100 quid a week, but it was full time. Albion Rovers, Monday, Friday. Would you put bets on the games you were playing in? No. And how did it, how, how did it make you feel? We used to go to, I just loved it. Again, it was an escape. It was another form of an escape because I didn't know who the fuck I was. The drink was then, that was under 18s at Albinovers. So we Albinovers, we used to get our wages on a Thursday. I'd get into the bookies. So sometimes I had to phone my mum and my dad to come pick us up to say they haven't given us their wages. Everything was a lie then. My whole life was a lie. A lie that I didn't drink, a lie that I didn't get in trouble, a lie that I wasn't gambling. I used to tap people money all the time. And then you're stealing money, stealing from your mum, stealing your dad's credit card. It, it started getting bad. And um, the gambling was the worst. You enjoyed the process. You enjoyed the buzz of it sitting there. Is it, you know, is it coming in? Is it, is it not? Yeah. How, what was the feeling like when you lost your money? Where'd I get the next money from? It's like a crack addict. Where'd I get the next bit of, bit of cracks? Like any addict. And did that, over, did that override the disappointment of... Fuck, I've just lost that sinking yeah. feeling. But you get used to it. So it must do something to the neural pathways. It must do something to the receptors in the brain. Because when you gamble, they talk about now it's the equivalent of taking heroin. It's the equivalent of when you place a bet, you're getting the same dopamine kick as taking heroin or coke. Um, so when you're placing bets, it's nothing to do with the winning. It's the feeling. It's the feeling of putting money on and feeling good. That's it. Whether I won or lost, whether it was a 10 grand bet or whether it was a pound bet, it's the feeling of... Mm. Not knowing, just you're sitting there. Every man in a bookies looks demented. They look miserable. They're fucking grey. They're either red or they're just lying to their wives. It's a, it's the hidden addiction. It's a painful addiction. So I, I never realised it was a problem then, because I just thought that's what everybody done. Plus I was drinking. Life was full of chaos. Mm. So I just felt as if I had to do something. So it was always elements of everything. You like the chaos. Yeah, that's what I, I thrive on chaos. Mm. If my life's going too peaceful, I think there's something wrong. But <laughs> not so not so much now, because I understand now the difference between boredom and peace. Oh, peace. My life's at peace. It's a beautiful thing. But mm. then it was normal to just be robbing Peter this fucking pay Paul. So 
Um, but yeah, it was just that gambling, then the alcohol, everything. I was just confused then. I was so lost. You see that picture of you on your Instagram where it's quite a, it's a harrowing image. The, the longer you stare at it, the more you take it on board. You're on your own. You've got all the paraphernalia in front of you. You look very, very upset. You mm -hmm. look sad. You look lost. You look desperate. Yeah. And you, you promote that as well, mm -hmm. just to show people this doesn't have to be you forever. So how did you go from playing at such a high level football, scoring all the goals, living a high life, then it doesn't seem like it was a, a great deal of time before you're sat in what looked like a flat or a bedsit, looking gaunt and completely lost with drinking drugs surrounding you. How did it get to that so quick? It's just a process, isn't it? It's one year and then the two years. I could always, I was a functioning addict. And when I say that, I wasn't on coke and alcohol every day. But when I partied, the people who partied with me, it was a four-day stunt. And it was, there was nobody goes home. I hung about the people who just love partying. Like we sat in parties, people were getting sacked, we were breaking up relationships. We didn't care as long as we were with each other. As long as it was a bag of coke, a few bottles of booze, we were sweet. Nothing else mattered. So it just it was a process. Lost the football career. I kind of chucked it after Albion Overs. I just lost interest. I just loved partying. And being in the nightclub scene at 15 and 16, I knew all the bad boys. I knew all the local gangsters or the so-called gangsters who used to go and party. So I loved what they were doing. What they were doing was an attraction for me. They had the women, they had a bit of money. They just looked, when they walked into places, it was they were powerful. And I was like their little fucking apprentice. That was all my dad's friends. They don't know the destruction it causes later in life, but mm. they think they're looking after me. They think it's better for me being with them than anywhere else. So it just became, I wanted that lifestyle. I wanted that. I was, it was never me anyway. I acted that life. Anger, frustration, I acted that. But part of it, I get used a lot as well because like I say, I could get all the birds. birds and plus I was what a party and people love that sort of kind of fake bad boy fucking image. But it just spirals. Every year got worse. Every year got worse. Um, I just wanted to be that pretend character that I thought was a cool character. Not realising on later in life that it's the working man, it's the tough man. For sure. Because that, that picture that you was in, so you wanted to be with, you know, the, the high-flying, tough guys yeah. with a reputation that seems solid. But that picture of you that looked like you were in a squat, I can't imagine those big, tough, macho men being part of that scene. That looked like like a junkie scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So did it... Yeah, well, that's, really that, that was, that's one of the last parties I had. That was one of the last. I could fly under the radar because I would go for sunbeds. I would always be smart. I was always immaculate. Um, always wear nice suits, but I was stealing my dad's credit card and shit, and going down to House of Fraser's, buying all fucking top suits and all designer shit. Do you know what I mean? Like when you start stealing from your own family, you know something's not right. People may think because of your podcast and the type of guests that you have on that you was heavily into villainy and criminality, nah. but you just got up to mischief. Yeah, that you, was you're that. probably a young lad with yeah, ADHD. Yeah, yeah. You didn't read, you didn't learn because you weren't interested. But mm -hmm. as soon as you focused on something that you liked football, you went laser focus and become the yeah. best. Yeah. And that, like I say, my friends were game. As a lot of them, some of them are in prison now for murder and serious offences, a lot of knife crime, a lot of gun violence. I was never that character, but I was always in the mix. Mm. I could, but if somebody wanted to fucking jump off a roof into a swimming pool, after I'll do it. I'm that guy the daft shit 
they liked the violent stuff. There was a mixture of everything. That was just fucking crazy. But just daft, daft shit. 22. And that's when I started getting involved in the serious stuff. That's when it's like you start trying to make money and friends become more dodgy. Um, end up in prison. End up in prison, 22. That's my first stunt in Berlin, adult prison. Mm. Why did you get sent to prison? Car chase. Took a car chase. They said there was something in the car. I took the chase. I ended up crashing into them up in Porcel. Um, big guy called Muscles beat fuck out his man. Black eye, burst head. Um, and that's when there was too much because I was already banned from driving before that. So I was always getting drunk. I was drinking a lot then. So it was always... When you, when you say, mate, when you say car chase, yeah, I thought you're... You're being chased by the police. Yeah, I was in the car. Yeah. So, what did you did you did you have something in the yeah. car? What was in there? Yeah, I can't say. So I never got caught with it. Ah, you can tell us. Yeah, after camera, <laughs> after camera. But it's uh, yeah, they, I was with somebody. They get away, um, and yeah, I get caught crashed into them, and uh, again, I thought I'm fucked here. Yeah. Because they were trying to do a fucking serious assault. They try to say, I'm not trying to all come down. He's talking shit. But um, that was 22. That was a that was a time. But again, see, when you go, go to prison, it's like stripes. It's if you've earned a little badge. Mm. Always thought, oh, that's what people need to do. It's fucking stupid. I always love my freedom. I love women. I love partying. I don't, people used to, f- like friends and that, thought it was good. When they used to come out, used to hear the stories and think, fuck me, like, you're amazing. Not realising how fucking stupid it is and how, much a fucking idiot, you have to even thinking like that. But yeah, twenty two Berlin, and that's when it, I thought, "Fuck me, this is." And it. How long did you get? Nine months. What'd you do? It's like six months. So you do a few months um, inside, and then a few months on tag. And how did someone like you, who's not nasty by default, you're just mischievous, and you're a good-looking bastard back in the day? How did you deal with jail? That was when I. Because you watch the movies, you watch the films, you think, I'm going to get shagged in here. I thought, man, I'm going to be target, prime example. But first day I got there, I remember being nervous because the woman who was interviewing me was saying, are you okay? And I'm thinking, yeah, of course, but I was whistling, not realising that's a defence mechanism because I was nervous. But as soon as I went in there, I think you go e-hole for the first night. You're in e-hole and um, it's like all the nonsense. It's like an overnight stay. You kind of in there for one night and then I get put to A-hole. Soon I was in A-hole, I met uh, Boy Draggy, Postal Boy, always in and out of the jail. He got he got me on the pass straight away after two days. So I was on the pass, my cell was open up, um, I knew other boys. So then when you walk in there nervous, after a few days you start walking with a swagger. So I, bear in mind, I'm only in prison for a few months. I was in every fucking hall after that. Every hall, always up to something. I was always trying to make money as well to feed that lifestyle anyway. So I used to run, because I was a gambler, I used to run the bookie. So we used to get, like, say it was a race meeting at Ascot, five or six races. If your horse wins, you get three points, second, two points, one. So I used to get that little bookie going. It was bars of chocolate, two bars of chocolate. Everybody put in, if you win, you get the chocolates. Plus I would get my bit. Um, this was an A-hole. Um, but we ended up in a fight with Jerry Dobin, he was called from the Gorbals. He's dead now, God rest his soul. We get into a fight there. Um... And they fucking kicked us off. I ended up in B-hole. And I fucking hated that. It. it was like a dungeon. It was dark. Because I'm going in there straight away. Plus my dad knew a couple of the screws with being a bouncer. Um, that was my thing as well. My dad would get me out of so fucking much shit. 
So I'd always push the boat, thinking my dad's always going to be there. Mm. I can always get out of trouble, even though I wasn't that bad. People might look and say, oh, you're a fucking liar, you're doing a lot worse than that. But it was, um, he would always get me out because he knew everybody. They would say, look, your son's fucking, he's he'd be like, listen, let me speak to him. Um, so he knew a couple of the screws as well. But as soon as I went to B-Hole, I fucking hated it. Hated it. Um, so I'd I try to get moved. What was it? What was the difference between the two? A hole was mayor. It was autumn. I was I had my own cell. I had my own Peter. They call it in Glasgow. Um, so you could walk about. I would collect the plates, um, mop the floor, and it just gets shut off. You're not dubbed up twenty three hours a day. So I get put to B hole, and that was the case. Twenty three hours a day. I had the gym anytime because in the mornings you go to the register and put your name down for the gym because I was on the pass I'd put my name down and all my pal's names down so we'd have the gym every day B-Hall was a different ball game it was dark it was dungeon it was 23 hours um, and my dad got us another favour where I went to I think I'd requested to go to D-Hall uh, Cha kid Cha boy from Porso him and his brother um, both dead now God rest their soul man and fucking uh, it ended up okay there but I put in to be on the pass for the gym um, and I got that. So when you're in the pass for the gym, you end up going to Lefham Hall. Lefham Hall's like a prison within a prison. You're, you can open your door 24 hours a day. So you're in there when you work on the gym. But I tried to be a smart ass. I wanted, I was very good at trying to fit in. I was a people pleaser back then, trying to fit in with everybody else. So I ended up in Lefham Hall and they were, other people were selling drugs, bits of gear, 50 quid for fucking 0.2 or whatever it was back then. We were making some serious dough. So because I was on the gym, I had contacts with the gardener as well, so I could have got gear through over the wall, mm. which I try to fucking do. But I knew the gardener wasn't on that day the day I tried to get it. So I was on the phone in Lefham Hall. Um, cancel those tickets, mate, because I, I won't be out in time. Stupid, not thinking fuck all over it. A couple of hours later, man, they've came, raided the cell, put back to B-Hall. Fucking hated it. Hated it. And I finished the rest of the sentence in there. Hated it. That's when I realised I'm never coming back here again. So that was your only time in yeah, jail? Yeah. Um, so it kicked out there, I went to B-Hole, and I fucking hated that. that. If I never went there, and if I stayed in A-Hole, I left from Hall, I thought prison was a fucking course. So everything in my life has been a blessing as well, even though it's taught me many lessons. It's There's a lot of destruction and pain there, because while when, this is when my life slipped. This is when it, it became my darkest. So my dad got diagnosed with leukemia while I was in prison. My uncle was murdered. When I got out of prison, I had two girls pregnant at the same time. My best pal hung himself all in the space of fucking six months. So that's when I couldn't handle life. My dad got taught in remission, kind of beat it. You never think he's going to die. And then obviously you get the phone call to say, look, there's only, your dad's been up in the hospital, son. The bloods aren't good. He's only got three months to live. That then changes everything. And was that why you was inside you found that out? Oh, uh, yeah. So I don't know. Part of yourself blames yourself because you think all oh, the pressures and stress. I understand now, we're speaking to enough people, the stresses and pressures on life cause the body to go in pain, whether that's cancers, whether it's fucking going grey. Or... Your whole aura changes with stresses. When I interview people, I know, wait a minute, he's not in a good place or she, it's not in a good place. You can see the anxiety. Hmm. Don't just get anxiety overnight. When you're a kid, you're smiling three to 500 times a day. By the time you're an adult, you only smile between five and ten. So whatever system's in place, whatever things are in place, people are destroying their happiness. So when you do that for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you see people's whole energy change. And that's where I don't understand the pressures of life. A kid who had a football career, 
had the ability to do anything. Plus, I was doing a little bit of modelling. I was fucking, I was doing all right, man, but I just used to squander my money. Live for today. And uh, you kind of think, was that the pressures of the life? Your son's in fucking prison. Um, not for long, but you just look back at, like, my son, man, I could never think of how heartbreaking that would be, do you know what I mean? Like, he'd never show any emotion, my dad, but I know it would have killed him to see me gone down that path. So when he got diagnosed with leukemia, that was, you never think he would die. You always think they'll beat it. You always think they'll live forever for some weird reason. But to see him deteriorate, I never handled that well. No, I bet. And your best friend, he hung himself. Yeah, yeah he killed himself. He, the drugs just got him. Did you start taking drugs at the same sort of time? I was kind of losing myself to drugs anyway. Cocaine was the main thing. Gambling cocaine. That was the, that was, I was, it's not dry. No booze sometimes. Yeah. But all my friends were active, so they used to have big bags of fucking gear. We were using each other because I was a gambler. I never had money. I was always tapping people or they would come on out. I was always that nature. People would always give me things. If I'd fuck somebody for money, they would struggle to fucking hate on me because I'd have that big daft smile or I'll get you. Mm. But they would still give me more stuff or they would give me more money. They would. That was my nature. It's like a gift to the gab. It's like a fanny man just going through it. You're, I was like a circus act. Always at the parties. I was always lively. I was always mischief and fucking up on the table dancing or four days I would keep the party going um, but looking back you're just, a, you're just a circus act you're a clown I'd have been better putting a clown outfit on and go, joining a circus how do you recover from your best mate hanging himself you don't you don't then my dad then I had two girls pregnant at the same time as well I thought this, at that stage I never thought I'd live, live past 30 I know that when you hit 30 that was the, that was the turning point for you where everything started going that way. But this is this is this is before you're thirty, obviously. So your dad, two girls pregnant at the same time, and your best mate hanging himself. That is that is a hell of a lot for one man to take. I mean, even one of those things for one man is a lot to take on and try and make sense of, and then recover from. Let alone move forward and then sort of build the life that you've built for yourself now. Because I get a lot of DMs. I'm sure you get 10 times the amount that I do and they're probably of a similar nature. And I get a lot of people say to me that their best friend died. They've OD'd, been murdered, hung themselves. I think, shit, I've dealt with a fair few bits and pieces in my life, but how how would I actually deal with that? What, do you, what did you do? Self-medicated, drink, drugs, anger, frustration, gambling. They were already in the back burner. They were already in my locker. Mm. When my dad died, that was the worst because I thought, what? Because when my dad got three months to live, but the, the coppers at that stage were coming through my door. My dad got three months to live. They came through my door. When my dad's dying, they came through my house, right through the fucking door. Um, and my dad's up in his bed dying. I got a phone call at five in the morning to say, well, listen, when my phone goes at five in the morning back then, it's for two reasons. Somebody's wanted to party and get on it. Or the coppers are at your door. And sure as fuck it was the coppers were at the door. They were wanting me to question over a robbery. Um, so I thought, fucking hell. Like, instead of me trying to handle it, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just straight back on the packet. I'm straight out for three, four days. Bear in mind my dad's fucking dying. My mum's had to kind of nurse him. Um, as a man, you sh I should have been there at the forefront. I know that now, but I didn't know how to handle the pressures and the losses of life. I thought... 
these bastards are trying to set me up for something because there was a lot of other shit going on at that time, which I'm not getting into because it's still ongoing. But um, I thought these fuckers are trying to set me up here. Uh, and if I held myself in, there was a good chance I was getting remanded. But if I stay away, the last few fucking months of my dad's life are going to be even more torment because the coppers are looking for his son. He's fucking dying. So I kind of thought, man, like, it was kind of a crossroads. And, but for me, I looked after myself, didn't I? I didn't face the music. I fucking got high. I got mad with it. Then the weed started to kick into that place. So I kind of, when my dad was dying, the weed started to sneak in for some reason. But again, when I look back, it was all, it all made sense. Because even when I was active, I was doing little bits to make money. Because I was a gambler, I never kicked on. I never ever kicked on anything I'd done. It was always level one. Because when you've never got anything, I burnt all my bridges. If I had the mindset now, I'd have been fucking a force at anything I ever put my mind to. Because I understand emotions, understand how patterns work, understand how to be successful. But I'm glad because now I look back and I think, fuck me, like if I'd, all that served me at that time, even though it was all pain and misery, it was all the same patterns as well. But all my dad's uncles were murdered. All my uncles were murdered. My mum's lost two brothers to murder. So bear in mind, my mum's lost two brothers to murder. Uh, her dad, her husband died with leukemia. I was a fuck up, but that pressure the women's went through is unbelievable mm. to fucking even go through that. But yet you don't see that. I seen me, bear in mind I've got fucking kids on the way, but I just want to sit in parties and get high. I don't want to fucking admit I'm a fucking loser. I don't want to admit I've got issues or problems. Everybody else was a problem. They could never just leave me alone, just switch the phone off. I blamed everybody else. No seeing that I had fucking addictions everywhere. I was never a coke every day. I was never alcohol every day but when it was a session it was three four days the gambling was every day so when you open the door to one negative thing you open the door to the whole fucking lot of them so i had gambling drink sex fucking everything else that came with every other negative trait you could possibly think i just wanted that because that made me feel important so sometimes you do that stuff and it make you feel good for a day then it becomes 18 hours, then 16 hours, then 14 hours, 10 hours, 8 hours, 6 hours. And then you do, it just makes you feel worse. I wasn't even getting any, any satisfaction. I was just in pain, sober, or on drugs, because of this here. All those murders that well, you had a direct connection to, in the sense of you're going to feel that pain because they're, you know, you're, you're connected one way or another. They're relatives. Were they gangland related? Yeah, and uh, but I'd already lost friends to murder before that as well. I'd already, I've, I've been losing friends since the ages of 14. My friend Archie who passed away, he was a good friend at school, mad bastard man. Um, he passed away at 14, so I kind of, every year there was always pain. There was always element of pain. There was always losing loved ones from addiction, suicide or murder. There was never anything. The only two people I lost... In my life, now I've been to over 40 funerals and I'm only fucking 39. That's a lot of people. Um, and the only two, only two of them have been through natural causes, which is my great grand and grandparent, my great grandma. That's the only two that went natural causes. They went 83 and 85, I think. And the rest has all been through addiction, cancers, murder, suicide, just all torment. What's, what are the murders? Guns or knives? Both. Both. Family members stabbed to death and shot, shot dead. Friends shot, stabbed. Do you know what I mean? So All drug it, related. Yeah, kind of. And it just stupid things as well. Not everything. It's just things that shouldn't. Nobody should ever get murdered. Ever. There should be no. But that's just the way the world. Everybody's in turmoil. The money's the root of all evil. It causes so much pain and destruction. 
Do you know what I mean? So it's just in that low vibration. That's why I always talk about vibrations and energy and always say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. That was the life that was normalised, that fucking weird, dark life. Do you know what I mean? Like I've seen the weakest become the strongest and I've seen the strongest become the weakest. I never looked at anybody and thought they're living it. I used to look at the drug dealers with the big convertibles, the big blondes in the front seat and think, wow, that's what I need to get. That's what's going to make me happy. Not realising in years to come, the girlfriends are haggard. They've been passed about fucking anybody's business. The boyfriends or husbands are in out of prison. They're skint. They're, they're just, it's just a fucked up environment. It's a fucked up lifestyle. And yet we glorify it so much. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they, being a gangster makes a good movie, but it don't make a good life. Yeah, never. 39 funerals, yeah. or however many you've, you've been to, and two of them natural causes, the rest are through fucking murders. Yeah. Man, that's a lot to take on. And this is all before... You were, you were 30. Yeah. But I was a party boy though. So people might not understand it, but I was, I would, I would go everywhere in Glasgow. Like, well, I wasn't, wasn't just the area I grew up. I was always ventured out. I was going to Liverpool and Leeds and I was always like, in Glasgow at that time partying. I just go to party houses. So back then you're 20, 30 people in a gaff and then it would swindle down to 20, 10. But you'd always have that five or six people who would be there the third day, the fourth day, who didn't want to go home for some reason. I was that guy. Mm. But you grow a bond with those people. Still now I think about those people, what they're doing. See, being at your weakest and your lowest, there's a connection there with these people you're partying with. Because they were using me just as much as I was using them. I, I wanted somebody there. And if I didn't have somebody there in my partying days, I would try and have a girl there with me as well. I just needed somebody. I couldn't be alone. I couldn't be alone. I had to always be active. I had to always be something because it made these thoughts... The voices wouldn't be as loud. Yeah, it's crazy, man. But I thought that was normal. Mm. But my dad went, I just, I remember when he passed away in the couch, it's funny, when he passed away in the couch, and I remember just grabbing him and saying, and saying sorry in his ear. Just remember saying sorry, sorry. And he said, shut up, son. But he had a wee tear in his eye. And I just thought, fuck. And because uh, he was kind of all over the place then, because he was, he was dying. I didn't want to die in the hospital. Had too much pride. And uh, yeah, I just remember saying sorry. And I went up to the room. Had a cry, had a few joints, and then. Do, do you think your dad knew what you was apologising for? I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. See, if you was good at hiding a mask and everything, yeah. did he realise just how out of control you were? No, because your parents always try and see good in you. Like I say, I was never that. But then I look back, oh my, they were all mad bastards. My life is full of chaos and torment. People don't realise the extent of it. And obviously, I can get into a lot today, but there's a lot I can't go into because a lot of stuff's unsolved. A lot of stuffs still there and you know what I mean and you always feel when you're telling your story talking out of school as well mm, do you know I what I mean I'm, I'm just trying to teach people from understanding my life a bit more and what I've overcome to then make the changes to try and be something in your life you know what I mean so my dad went the shackles were off and I just became lost I felt as if I had a free for all but I was scared because I never had that back up yeah no safety net that is scary yeah so again when that happened my life slipped for years the coke the drink but then the weed replaced that I didn't smoke. I, I cannot imagine you ever smoking. I can imagine all the other stuff and eat yeah. Valiums, but I can never imagine you smoking. Yeah, smoking joints, man. And it kind of, when I look at the things, I realise whatever cards I've been dealt, that was the cards that were supposed to be there, the gambling, because I never kicked on at other levels of crime. I stayed at level one, but the joints just soon caught up with the gambling. It became on par both every day. So I'd sit in my room, smoke joints, realising now I was just depressed. I lost myself completely. I wasn't working. I was staying in my mum's house, 
only f- and I had two kids, which I couldn't provide for because I was a fucking bum. I was gambling every day and smoking joints. Um, How low did that take you? Suicidal low? Think about suicide, but I never had the bottle to do it. I never had the minerals, man. There's no, I never had. I think about it with people come to my funeral, with people die, with people cry, with the care. But I just, you think about it, you think about it because it's easier. It's not easier, but whoever then decides to make that decision, man, it takes a lot of balls mm. to do that decision. Like that's for me. Listen, there's got to be some element of depression and a little bit of weakness or whatever. You don't want to find that. But to take your own life is nothing but strength to fucking end it. But it just shows you how dark your thought process is to end it. I never, I thought about it. I thought about what it'd be like at my funeral or death, but I never, I would never fall it through. But the thoughts were frequent because you're just lying there being a bum. Um, the weed kicked in. That was every night with the gambling. So I just had weed and gambling in my life at that time through 25, 26 to 20, just maybe the odd night out with the coat, but I didn't like it because... I was always confident, but when you start then from 12 stone to be going 14 stone, 15 stone, 16 stone, nothing fits you, you feel uncomfortable, you're sweating, people tell you, fuck me, you're putting on the weight. I'd become one of those guys who were a good looking kid back in the day, but their hair falls out, they start putting on the weight in their 30s, they become totally lost. I knew I was becoming that, I could have been somebody guy, mm. sitting in a pub, I could have been a contender, I could have been a football player, every guy who I sat in a pub, we could have been something. And I, and I was becoming that guy, something that had the ability to do anything to then losing it all. And that just, I just became a recluse then. For the first time in my life, I became a recluse, just sat in the house smoking. When I was smoking joints when my dad was dying, he was going, they were going out for dinners, his last fucking supper basically, and I'm fucking in the house just wanting to smoke joints and, and gamble. His fucking last time on the planet. We know he's got a time limit, we know he's going to die, but mm. I chose the other stuff. I, I don't know if it's because it's hard to see as well. A lot of that's pain. Like I don't want, it's not that was a bad, I just didn't want to see it. Mm. Well, I wanted to block it out. So that's where it all came from, blocking everything out. But with the weed, again, it's it's full of shit. The chemicals that's in it, the stuff that's sprayed with, the damage it does to the brain. People, look at Snoop Dogg. He looks fucking terrible. Mm. There's people in their 50s and 60s that look a hundred times better than him, but then it's glorified. I used to listen to all that shite rap music, low vibrational stuff, 808, smoking joints and think you're a fucking gangster. You're a fucking mug. Do you know what I mean? You're putting something into your body that's taking you away and numbing some sort of pain. You become in a bubble. For me personally, when you smoke weed, the TV's funnier, food tastes better. But fuck me, your psyche's not here. Because coming off that again is, is one of the hardest. It's up there with the gambling, coming off the weed. That was for a fucking struggle. Mm. The agitation, because I used to put tobacco in with my joints. So I had the tobacco and the, the joints, the, the weed, to kind of come off. People say, it's easy, I can stop. Stop then. They can't. Nah. It's fucking hard. I know people now because I've seen people smoking hash 14, 15, 16 who are still smoking in their 30s and 40s. They give up then. They can't because it's gripped them. It's like when you've got an addiction, your soul gets kidnapped. They kidnap your soul. Your vessel's still here walking about, but your soul's it's, it's there. Something's got your soul. Same as alcohol. Alcohol comes from the Arabic word, Arabic word which means alcohol, which means ghoul body eating spirits that's why they call it spirits because the same when you drink it, it toxifies the the soul the soul leaves the body and the, the entities of the spirits that you're drinking take over the body people black out sleep with people sleep with people they don't even fucking like get angry the jail's full of people full of, who's in there through, through drink mm. 
because it gives them that Dutch courage and they think they're game when they're not. And then they're sitting in there thinking, what the fuck have I done? Alcohol's a poison as well, just as much as the weed, just as much as coffee, just as much as sugar. And I know there's health benefits from them all, but it takes away your free thinking because we crave it. And as soon as you crave something, it's got your power. That's why when you ask for a coffee, Ella says no, because I'd be fucking six or eight coffees deep, all agitated all over the gaff. I crave it. The only thing I crave now is sugar. But I understand the process. And there's so many health benefits and negatives from everything in life. I get it, but for me and my understanding of it, I don't want anything to ever have the power over me the way it used to have in my life. And that's why it's fucking difficult. Before we go to the turning point, in amongst all the madness, did you ever did you ever think to yourself, I could end up getting murdered? Yeah, of course, man. Because you're at parties, you're sitting with randoms, you're... The coke was getting stronger as well. The proper was coming out. Like we used to snort maybe half an ounce, an ounce between a few of us over the weekend. Um, a grandma proper man. Everybody was out their tits for two, three nights. It was fucking. It was a. It was another ball game. People think they were saving money, but I prefer the shitier stuff. You do a shite and your mouth's all fucking numb. That stuff was all right. The fifty, fifty, mm. um, fifty quid bit of gear. This stuff was hundred quid, and it, I seen the difference in the change. Everybody's sitting at parties, vegetated. It was crazy. But it was always in my thought I never make it past 30 anyway. That's why I thought, fuck it, if I've got kids and at least maybe somebody could leave a legacy for me and uh, live in my name. I never seen the future. I never had any plans. I never had any goals. I never, it was just living day by day. Where can I get the next bit of money? Who can I tap? Can I go to my sisters for money? Can I go to my mum's for money? I was starting to lose the people who would help me out. It became a lonely journey. And I knew I was, because, I knew I was a total failure then. Did you notice people losing respect for you? Yeah, I'd lost that when I, I just, when you start fucking everybody for money, you lose that because I was tapping neighbours and I would never give, give them it back. I still owe them. That was the gambling addiction. It took me to places that scars you for life. And the biggest personality trait that you've got to adopt if you're living that sort of life, hand to mouth, addiction, plotting, scheming, is you have to become a liar. Yeah, a compulsive liar. And that's what I was good at. That's what I think my man of yours work as well, because I've learned so many trades at everything. Because when I'd fuck somebody for money, if I, I I needed to go and get money from someone, like if I needed to get money from my sister, I would go over and I'd butter everybody up, tell jokes, make everybody feel good. But you're a circus act. You're just a circus act to then make them feel good. And then when you leave, can you say, look, can you give me a hundred quid? And they go, oh, here, you daft bastard. Mm. They feel sorry for you, even though you owed them fucking thousands anyway. They know they're never getting it back but they just feel sorry for you. So you have to play a victim every time you go and hit somebody for money. You loan your vibration to try and get a, a fix, to then place a bet. Yeah, I've still got kids who I wasn't really providing for. And then you just feel like a total loser. So you're still blocking out all the pain. I never faced the pain, ever. Until obviously when you start really wanting to make changes and then you go, you know what, fuck it, I'm better than this. I used to sit at parties at the end up and think, this ain't it for me. I used to look around and think, look at the fucking state of these people. I used to stand in bookies think, look at the, these mugs. I started getting angry who I'd become. I started getting angry who I was surrounding myself with. I started getting angry looking at these other people and nobody's thinking about, is this it? Can we not do better? I started to think that way. And then at 29, that's when I, I thought, fuck this, I'm done. I, that photo with the green jacket, that was the, that was the last straw. That was the one where I thought, ah. I'm better than us. It's good that you keep that photograph up. I, as a permanent reminder yeah. for you as who you never want to be again and how far you've come, but also for all the hundreds of thousands of people that follow you, you're walking, talking, living proof, you know, and I've heard you say it enough times. 
everybody can change, yeah. but they've got to want to change, haven't they? Yeah. That's the that's key number one. You can't just imagine changing and take no action. You've actually got to really, really dig deep and have a conversation with yourself that you don't actually like. Yeah, and that's that's the game changer there. It's painful. Change is painful, but the beautiful thing about life, and I always repeat it because you don't know who's listening or watching it, might need it at this moment. Anybody can make changes, no matter if you're an addict, no matter if you're in prison, no matter if you're in an abusive relationship. You can change anything in your life that you want to, but it takes time. It takes fucking guts. It takes courage. It takes everything that you have in your fucking soul to then push on and go, I'm not taking this anymore. Goal setting is key. There's only 3% of the world to goal set. Writing it down is putting spells into the universe. That's why I call it spelling for a reason. Every goal that I've set out over the last 10 years, I've achieved every single fucking one. It's so important. So I made the changes. 29, I done fuck this. Came off it for nine months. Drink, drugs, gambling. I went... Uh, four months I remember running along the canal I started running um, I had my big pal Tam did you go rehab first? no 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 went to started going to meetings A N A C A but I wasn't an alcoholic Um, but they tell you the drink I was consuming three four days is probably more than an alcoholic was drinking on his every day so I would dip my toe in I'd get embarrassed I'd think I, I, this isn't me this isn't me but then you surrender to it and go well, fuck it is me Um. But gambling was my main one. That was the G was the main one for me because I just wanted to, f once you start going to these meetings, you realise you're not alone. You realise everybody's in the same boat. You realise I was still getting out semi-fucking-sane at 29 and that's when I met Louise and that's when I thought, fuck me, man, this is unbelievable. Um, my friend gave us a little job. It was 250 quid a week to clean out his storage. I was starting to make a bit of weight, a little wage. It never even fucking lasted because I was getting my food at lunchtime and I was you're probably lucky to have 100 quid a week. But I could then go to the cinema at the weekend, get a curry. For me, that was that was it. I didn't need the extravagant. I just thought, fuck me, this is what it feels like to be normal. I was starting to see the world differently. I was starting to say no, which is important, is saying no. Grow a set of balls and say no. If you don't want to go out, if you don't want to drink, if you don't want to take drugs, don't not feel peer pressure to agree, say no. You'll lose a lot of people through it, but the people never gave a fuck about you in the first place anyway. So I had the message going for the house, 29, life going amazing. I thought this was it. Have a more couple of kids, but under the same roof, steady household. I'll keep working that I've got. Um, I'll start building the bridges that I've burnt because um, people will know. The people are starting to see, fucking hell, mate, you're looking good. Um, because I always know how to be fit. I can still go out and run a half marathon. I can still, I'm strong, big cunt. Always got that in us through the years of, playing football, the weight and that goes up and down, but I'm always still fit. Um, changed at 29 and then ripped the ceiling down. Started gambling, then started drinking again, started doing the gear. She left, left that book, and that's when I started really looking at the world again, started watching motivational speakers. But when she left, I think it was just coming up my 30th birthday, had a massive 30th, massive 30th party, like three, 400 people in walkabout in the town in Glasgow. Uh, because I knew everybody. Everybody, I could go any area, any place, and I always knew people. Even to this day, they're just the audience has got wider. I can go anywhere on this planet and I would have a room for me. I would have a, a meal for me anywhere on the planet, whether that's the UK, Russia, Germany, Holland, Dubai, China, America. There's always a door open for me for me to go. I've kept in good contact, even though I can laugh about it now. The people in the past, my um, wee pal Jay, who I've just teamed up with again after 20 years, we were a couple of fucking loose cannons. Um, but Back to the 30th, I had my big party, and that's when the green jacket was there. I done, I fucked it again. Oh, that was your 30th Yeah, that was the four party. days deep. 
went to get a taxi at my, I never had any money, went to, I spunked all my fucking birthday money, it was like 1600 quid or 1700 quid through cards and stuff, um, done it all that four days, went to the casino and that, gambling full of gear, green jacket came on, done it, and uh, had no money, <laughs> my sister had to pay for the taxi, and uh, and that moment there as well was when it all changed, I sat in the room, I think I had a cry, I've done 30 years of age, I says, I'm a fucking deadbeat, I'm a bum, look at the state of you, um, rut it down, no more drink, no more drugs, no more gambling, and that's when I went out and fucking done it all. What did you do with that green jacket? I've kept it. Have you? Yeah, that's going in auction in 10 years, man, that'll be worth millions. You might get a few quid for uh, that. It's, uh, that, was a, that was a game changer. Can I just ask, what about the with the withdrawals? Painful. So mm. I could have done a murder. Because that's the fear. I think why a lot of people don't stop yeah. or deal with their addiction is because they are petrified of the withdrawal. Yeah. So it was always one or the other for me. I was If I stopped drinking and taking gear, I'd replace it with the weed. I would try and stop gambling, but for two or three weeks off of gambling, the weed would get higher. Ding take would get higher. So I'd try and cut it all out, which I'd never done from the ages of fucking 14. Never. There was all something there. So that was... The women, the drink, the drugs, the gambling, cut it all out, cleansed. And then I started to under, I started watching videos of Les Brown, Tony Robbins, and they were talking about energies and they were talking about positivity and to make changes, you've got to be consistent and keep going and push through the pain. But they were old school and it made sense. I used to walk for hours with my dog. I had a big boxer back then. I fucking loved him, Hatton. That was my best pal. Even though I had kids and that, I used to go home and my mum's for the dog. I fucking just loved them. I love dogs, man, still to this day. But I wrote it down and I was fucking flying. I went and done a personal training course. Six weeks, smashed it. I got 1,500 quid, I think, for my daughter's mum. My mum gave me money. My sister gave me money. They'd seen, you know what? This is the first time we've seen them trying. It was a six-week course. This is your first ever job, wasn't it? Yeah, six-week course. Um, cheated. I'm shite, I, like I say, the school, I get embarrassed, but when it comes to the, the interaction, the personal stuff, and out there in the gym floor, fucking fly and talk to people, all Pete, all talk, how's the dogs, how's the grandkids, they'd fucking love, they've never had a PT in their life, but after a few weeks they would come to me, because I'd build up a rapport, I've always had that gift, people just gravitate towards me, I'm a good cunt, so I would always make people feel good, even though I was conniving and thinking, how can I get money off him, or... I can fucking, which he, everything was a scam, but I'd make them feel good. He was a nice conniver. Yeah, 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 yeah. If we've ever had one. So I'd done that course, um, smashed it. Again, class clown. Still had that daftness. I was 30. Uh, cheated the test, sat next to a girl, copied all her results. And then for the practical, smashed that as well. So I got my first ever job in exercise for less and uh, being a PT. Within six weeks, this is when everything I've ever done, every football team I've ever, we've always been winners. I've always been a winner. I was always, a, even though I fucked up at a lot of things, every football team I was always a winner. We always won cups. We always won fucking leagues. Anything I've ever done, I always had the most beautiful girlfriends. Listen, I was still a fuck up, but in my mind, I could still, if I, if I were having a party for four days, I was a winner because I was the last to leave. Mm. I'm a winner, even though it was fucking negative. I won at this. Only losers quit. Yeah, exactly. So that was my <laughs> mindset. So I, even though I've always had. The winner mentality. I never know how. I never knew how to. I fucking never knew how to use it to my advantage for a positive in life. Became a PT, but after six weeks, the PTs and who are doing it 10, 20 years, struggling. I went in there six weeks and I was fully booked. I had fucking thirty hours a week booked in. I was fucking making thousands a week. The PT, the head PT, gets sacked. 
he caught taking steroids in the toilet or some shit. So Charlene Cooper, who I love to bit, so shout out with Charlene if she ever sees this. Um, everybody was going for an interview all suited and booted. There's 20 PTs in this gym. I bear in mind, I'm in this gym six weeks. I put in shorts and t-shirt on. I had a top knot at the time. I went down a fucking spiritual route, didn't I? Um, and uh, she gave me the job. Head PT. I was in charge of 20 personal trainers. I was fully booked. Within six weeks, I'm making changes and try to go um, and get a do something in my life, I became top boy, man, fully booked, everybody fucking loved us, every class I done was full, I just had a fucking presence, and I, because I was listening to all the motivational speakers, I thought that's what I can do, mm. so I planned to do motivational speaking, and then I went to LA, to become a motivational speaker, what happened over there? Man, he passed away, I come back and end up getting on it, <laughs> nah, <laughs> yeah, you lapsed again, yeah, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but fucking hell, yeah. geezer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, after the PT and you lapsed after that? Yeah, flying. I started to have money. I had serious dough. I was saving, seeing my kids, great relationship. Life was fucking brilliant. Um, just stayed on a journey. Stayed on a journey. Never shagged any of the clients. Never done nothing. Um, I was on a journey. Uh, and I'd done this for, what, over a year or something? And I thought, fuck it, I'm going to LA. I says, I can get a, jo a gym over, job in a gym over there. I can do motivational speaking. Went to LA, I was going to do the universities and that. I was going to clean up my accent, get some lessons, elocution lessons, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and then I went over to LA, I had things in place to do little talks, little seminars. Manny passed away, Manny Margaret, she was an alcoholic back in the day, changed her life, but ended up addicted to Diet Coke. I think she was drinking like 20 cans of that a day, ended up with cancer. Caffeine, yeah, so she's replaced that. Same as my uncles and that, they were all in the prisons and gone to prisons and ended up addicted to like gambling and drugs as well so it's always been in the family history it's in your bloodline isn't it? yeah so and then you start looking at the dna's and previous lives and how things can get passed down in generation my granders bad gamblers uncles um and out of prisons i've been going out of prisons for ages of four or five as long as i remember to visit uh, my dad's friends or uncles so went to la i thought you know what i'm on this journey I'm going to fucking take over the world. I'm going to become the biggest motivational speaker on the planet. I never had a clue what I was doing. I was only copying what they say. Even my podcast, the shit I say is from what other people say because I've took it to them and I've mastered it into a little craft. Um, so went to LA, got a phone call, listen, Auntie Margaret's not well, she's dying. They says, listen, it's probably best you just stay back. But my Auntie Margaret was amazing. So when the coppers and when I had wants out back in the day, I used to stay with her. Um, and poor bastard, man, she ended up I get chased out of the gym with the CID one day. I was getting questioned over something, some serious shit. And, um, they chased me out of the gym, man. I went to her house. But they've obviously followed us. The taxi driver, I've laid in the back seat in the taxi. And the taxi driver's saying, what are you fucking doing, mate? I says, look, mate, just drive, take us this address. And uh, I went up to her house, got money, paid the driver, and he's fucked off. I don't know if he said to the screws, but the coppers have come through his door, her door. She's took a hypo because she ended up um, diabetic. Again, and you see that struggle as well. But she was always my aunties and uncles, they could never say a bad word about me. They always had my fucking back. No matter what anybody says, no matter what I done, they always they loved us. Mum and dad just loved us. They couldn't really see. You got a you got a face that's very hard to dislike Thank no matter you. no matter what you do. <laughs> <laughs> so just, that's how you got away with it. Yeah, so I just always had that. But went to LA, thought it'd be amazing. But I just loved my auntie Margaret as well, and I thought I cannot not go to your funeral, fuck's sake, pay your respects, went back to your funeral, couple hours pass, I thought I'd smashed it all, because I'm coming out of two years off it all, not one drop, not nothing, just on a path, became a good personal trainer, making some dough, I've got dough in the bank, 
Kurt Lever's past had a vodka. Bang. Went missing for a year. I fucked it. I never went back to personal training, never done motivational speaking, never went back to LA, left it and just back to my mum's and just lost all the money, started gambling, started on the gear and I was just a lost soul again, 32. That's an addict in the truest sense of the word. You hear stories about people that have gone sober, 10 years, they get married, they raise a glass, have a sip of champagne to toast their wedding and then bam, that's it. And that's the first time I realised I've not got this under control. No. I thought I'd beat it. I was a smart ass. That's not got the power over me. I can have one drink. That one drink led to me a year off it. Went fucking mad again. And then I was in my mum's house, bang on it all. And then a Glasgow reality show popped up called Glow. Mm. And I thought, this is it. I could be a celebrity here. I can have all the birds. I can be a multi-millionaire. Multi -multi Fuck me, I was wrong, man. <laughs> and so when you, when, you went on, when you went on Glow, yeah. which is a... Glasgow, Glasgow reality, reality shows the first two letters and last two letters of Glasgow glow. So it's a it's it's a Scottish version of Towie. Yeah, yeah, but we're Glasgow's too rough to be competing with fucking Lamborghinis and three four million pound houses. We're fucking roughnecks. That cast of Glow was um, myself. We had people in the jail for guns and fucking serious assaults and attempt murders. It was a fucking it was mad bastards. Um, did you but, have to apply for Glow or did they yeah, come to no, you? Yeah, no, I went to audition. Somebody the messaged me because um, I was doing a personal training. I think it was a girl I'd done a personal training with. She says, look, there's a reality show. So we went for an audition, phone call the next day. Listen, you've got it. It's like six guys, six girls. I thought, this is it. Because I used to watch the other reality shows and think, man, they're happy. Mm. That will fit all the pieces together. That's what I need. I see celebrities and I think they're happy. That's their life. That's what will fit all the broken pieces together that's shattered in my life. Bit of money, bit of fame. I always kind of craved that. I thought that's what would make ease the pain. Hmm. Um, but you're still using. Yeah. At this stage. Oh, yeah. I was uh, on gloats, fucking parties. Everything was free. We had to do a pilot. Plus, every cunt slaughtered that. Glasgow people. Listen, I love Glasgow. It's where I'm from. I'd fucking die for the bastards. But it's, um, it's ruthless. <laughs> Scottish people are ruthless. So, glow gets slaughtered. It fucking got slaughtered. Look at these fannies, this and that. So the drink kind of suppressed that wave of hate. Um, because I never felt much hate in my life. Oh, you've got, you got hate from the back Oh, of fucking hell, we get terrorised. But even when I'd done the personal training, I'd never experienced hate because everybody I surrounded myself kind of loved us. Mm. I was always the funny guy. I always made people feel good, even though I was causing destruction and mayhem. But when I'd done the personal training job, as soon as I got the head PT... Uh, the first time I'd ever felt proper hate is when all the PTs turned against me. He's not qualified. He's this, he's that. He can't even do this right. And I'd felt that. I didn't like that, man. I didn't like that feeling of... Because I was a people pleaser as well. I'd like to make people happy. But these bastards turned on as people who'd done the job 10, 20 years and didn't get the job. They fucking turned. Resentful. Yeah. First time I'd ever felt it. And then I felt it again. Because I'm only thinking, I'm on here, shag all the birds, get a bit of fame, become a millionaire. Be on the telly now, that's it. The fucking glamorise all this fake shit. Because at that stage, it was popular then, 10 years ago. So, I done that. We partied like fuck. And um, we got slaughtered. What did you have to do to audition for... I just sat in the way I'm talking to you. I went down with my suit on, gelled hair, tan, and uh, gave him a bit of my backstory, and I just loved it. You're in? I was in. I was fucking in, and I had the party, and the, drug, the drink, the drugs. Just fucking mayhem. But... I became the fans' favourite. They done a vote. Um, the fans' favourite. And I would go that. So I thought, man, I, I'm light. I always struggled 
where being liked, I always struggled with no feeling good enough. Even today, I always feel as if I'm never good enough. I always feel as if I should be given more. I always feel as if maybe I should help him more. Because looking back in my life, I feel as if if I'd helped, if I was strong the way I am now, a lot of people I wouldn't have lost to overdose or suicide. But they've been in my fucking hands, like a simple sentence or a simple one hour chat with me. It can make your life see it a bit different. It's not to blow smoke up my own ass, but I spoke to enough people now to go, wait, wait a minute, man, I've done it. But I would never have had the experience and the knowledge that I've got now to then guide them because I was a fuck up, but became the fans' favourite. Um, and then it was just too much drama. There was too much drama. My kid's mum, who the my daughter's mum, boyfriend was in it as well, who she's now got a kid to. So we were in the show together. We ended up friends and stuff. It was madness, but it ended up too toxic. I left, became fans' favourite, and I thought, what the fuck am I going to do now? So I had to make changes again, write everything down again. This is why it's important to write it down because if you write it down, there's 60 to 70% more chance of it happening. So I wrote everything down, no drink, no drugs, no gambling, done it all again. Became clean, became sober, and I've obviously not looked back since. But through that, making changes, I love being on camera. I love speaking. I love making entertaining people. I love helping people. So I came down to London to try and look for work. I was going to get a PT job somewhere. But in the midst of that, I ended up speaking to a veteran who was homeless. I think it was like 20 years on the street or something. And it fucking broke my heart, man. It pulled my strings and I thought, because I was always looking for answers. This old man gave me the answers because I realised, first of all, James, your life's not that bad. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. I felt as if I was a victim for years. Spoke to this man, told me his story. Ended up hitting the bottle. His kids left him. His missus left him. Served for his country for fucking many years. And ended up in the street homeless with nothing. And it touched us for some reason. And I thought, you know what? That's when I decided to make the homeless documentary. Made the documentary Homeless at Christmas. The same guys that I worked with on Glow, Gordon and Steph, Steph, who I still work with now. Um, I come up with this idea to do a homeless documentary. Uh, to go homeless for seven days, sleep in the street for seven days through Christmas. And I always questioned myself for that. I thought, am I doing this because I still want attention to pretend that I'm a good guy? Or am I doing it for the right reasons? If I'm honest, part it was both. I wanted to be liked, I've always wanted to be liked, I always wanted people to think I was a good guy, um, even though I fucking done a lot of shit back in the day, but decided to do this documentary, these guys agreed to do it, bear in mind I've no money, um, and I we done it, I slept in the street, told the family I was going on a fitness retreat, they're like, ah, that's amazing, because they knew I was going through that journey again, slept in the streets for seven days, and it just, since then, my life has just got bigger, better, stronger, um, and since then, I've got stronger physically, financially, mentally, spiritually. It's just been non-stop the last six years. Your homeless documentary, which I think should be mandatory viewing, and I encourage anybody to go and find it on James's channel. Now, a lot of people would make a similar documentary, but when the camera cuts, they go back to bed. You didn't do that, did you? You no. lived it and breathed it as if you was actually homeless, didn't you? Yeah. Food banks. Slept in the street, but I was practically fucking homeless anyway, but staying in my I never had any money. For part of me as well, I was thinking that, man, maybe you'll see the world differently. First first day, I was I was slept in a chapel doorway, and I thought, what the fuck am I doing? What am I doing? Get yourself home. But it's freezing. It was coming up to Christmas. Um, but then the second day came, and then I started to get to speak to people, and then the third day came, and then I, I became closer to these people, started sleeping under uh, bridges, became close to Cass, who was a transgender, Stuart, which we'll touch on in a bit, but I just um, and then I started going to these shelters and seeing these amazing people. Like I'm not a, I'm not a 
into religion anymore, but these people believed in Christ and they were people who were homeless were changing their lives and then helping other people. They had a belief system and that could be a great thing for other people. For me, it's just I see the world differently and that's the way I see it just now. Who knows what the future holds? But started seeing these people talking about religion and them getting upset and really want to help people and Christmas dinners and giving people clothes and walking around the streets at night, making sure people are safe. Because when I started doing that documentary, one of the women was raped twice in a day. A guy was stabbed, set on fire, shot on, peed on. But what they have to go through on a daily basis is unbelievable. That's human beings. And I forget it sometimes. I forget what the purpose is. And that's the gift in life is given for me. As soon as you help somebody, not only do you help them automatically, but you automatically feel good. And we're so lost in a society. We walk by homeless people every single fucking day of the week. When I was doing that documentary, part of me thought I was going insane. Part of me thinking, am I waking up and I'm actually homeless? Because when it got to day four, day five, I was shattered because I never really switched off because I always thought, what if somebody fucking stabs me? What if somebody actually thinks I was homeless and somebody tries to test me? So it's scary as well, but when you actually see people who have once had that opportunity, the same as everybody at birth, to be something in their life or try and do good, everybody's success levels are different in life. Everybody defines everything differently, but it's when you're, there's people who's got less than me and you, Liam, who are happier than me and you. Do you know what I mean? Some of these people who were homeless were quite happy and content there and funny and just fuck it, life mentality. Listen, for me, it's it's not the way it should be. No man or no woman should be homeless, but they were, um, it fucking touched us a lot of the stories and, and building a bond and, and try to do the right thing in life. But part of me was doing it for myself and ever since that documentary we've changed lives from it i still do so much work behind the scenes doing it which i don't promote because i feel as if as soon as i promote i'm doing it for the selfish reasons but i've stuck to my word we've changed lives after it we still do work now with it and this has been five years later and what was the worst act of cruelty you witnessed when you was homeless just it's just the disrespect it's the guy shouting get a job or i never get spat on or peed on or none of that shit but it's the disrespect of human beings seeing other human beings lying there dying the food that we waste daily is unbelievable we've got fucking two billion people starving all around the world we've not got clean water in so many places in the world but yet we live a life of luxury here and yet we walk by people who are starving who are scared and who are basically dying on the streets we walk past them every day because we're so caught up in our own lives and i get that but for me, just somebody giving you your time, two minutes of your time. How are you? You okay? What happened? And just taking an interest in their story. For me, that's that was the most caring thing because there's a lot of people care. So many people were giving you sandwiches and money and, and clothes and a lot of genuine fucking people out there who genuinely care. There's so many other people who's caught up in their own world who are also struggling. There was people with two jobs who were still going to the food banks. So people are struggling. But when you see a homeless man in the street or a homeless woman, that's somebody's son or daughter, man. Somebody's best friend, somebody's mum or dad. And it's scary to think that people go to that level where they think that's all they are. Because it's okay rehoming someone. But if you've got low self-esteem, if you've got addiction issues, you can't fucking keep it. Do you know what I mean? I had, I, if I, I was gave a house in my 20s, I would have fucked it. But yeah, I was never homeless because I always knew I had a house to go to, or a girl's house to go to. But when you feel alone, a world within a world, and you don't feel good enough, that's why they turn to drinking drugs, because it fucking numbs your pain. It numbs whatever you're feeling. You've got to go back to the root of the problem. Work on the root, how you ended up there. Work on your addictions, and then try and rehome someone, in my own opinion. All this darkness you've seen stands to reason why you're going to want to mask it with stuff, be it substance or 
achieving, striving for, for the next thing, keeping your mind occupied. A lot of stand-up comedians, they uh, they hide behind the mask, don't they? Yeah. They're, they're blocking something out. And you gave that a go, didn't you? Mm. Stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy. I've always been interested in talking to you about this because, A, that takes some balls. Yeah. What, what made you think you're going to do it? And how did it go? Because I was always a funny bastard. But being funny at parties and standing up on a stage, that's a totally different level of balls. Yeah, man. Um, I went to Inverness and done my first gig. Gary Falls, who's still doing it, who I love to bits. Yeah. And I thought, fucking shit myself, get out there. And there's like a wee pub, like 60, 70 people. And my, my ass went, man. My ass went. I bet it did. I crumbled. I still got a couple of jokes. I tried to give people pelters in the crowd, but just nothing. I just lost it, man. And then I tried to do a few more, but I never had that method of thinking that I've got now of the consistency of mm. pushing through and learning the craft and repeat, repeat no matter if you fail, you must learn from that, grow from that, push through, and that's all I know now is success. 99% of success is failure. But again, that was just another journey. Done a few gigs and thought, oof, it's not for me because when I was making changes, I wanted to become as authentic as I could without masking because i was always masking my pain for me comedy was another form of masking because after the show i would be drained and i thought fucking hell that who am i that's not me it's not me as an individual i've played that act as a clown for so you, you long didn't enjoy it. yeah i became lost and yeah i don't know fuck this i thought what am i going to do i think i was watching russell brand uh joe rogan and then that's when a light bulb moment happened that's when i decided i'm going to be a podcast host so at what stage during of the journey because you went to a like a mind altering retreat didn't you ayahuasca retreat was that after the podcast yeah i was doing the podcast that so i done a homeless documentary december we had a big premiere for it stand innovation and i done fuck me man i've got something here mm. I'm, I'm good man it's something i've got this that like, i'm good behind the camera i can i don't know what it is it's a gift that i've always had i can always i, I don't know how to explain it but I realised I sold 300 tickets, we sold out a cinema room. I think it was like Christmas Eve or Boxing Day, it was like a Sunday. Everybody fucking showed up. Bear in mind, I've got 100 followers, I'm, uh, a few hundred followers, try to do Glow. And I've done this homeless documentary. There's some newspapers who still don't speak to me now because they thought it was a like a, a tool to deflate or whatever the fuck they're saying. They say it's just somebody's fame, fame hungry probably right to a degree but i felt it was a bit harsh because we changed lives from it and i think the more people who see it the more people who can understand life a bit and understand human beings but done the homeless documentary we've done the premiere and i decided to do the podcast in february can we before we move to the podcast mm -hmm. which i've i mean i'm interested in, in all of your life story but obviously i'm particularly interested in that now now it's a it's a journey i've decided to embark on so before we get to the good stuff the meat and the gravy just want to clear up a McDonald's incident oh, yeah, yeah, that I've yeah. seen on CCTV because yeah. I've I've seen I've seen it in its entirety, mm -hmm. and some people won't have seen it all. Some people would have heard little snippets here and there and everywhere. And from what I saw, you're in McDonald's, and you get approached aggressively by a female. Yeah, several times. Yeah, you put your hands up. Looks like a drink went flying somewhere. She's followed you out. I think there was two of them followed you out. You've done this to restrain her and it blew massively out of proportion. Mm -hmm. So in your own words, just, just clear that incident up. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. So I, 
I was, I think I was just finished Glow at the time. So my name was in the media and shit. Uh, and I st- network marketing I was doing. I think it was like, see, like the pyramid scheme. I don't know if it was like co- MLM. Yeah, it was like Multi-level coffee marketing. I was selling. But I mean, I could fill rooms up. Um, and I thought, man, it's like I'm a master of mini trades. Um, but I never ever found a passion. And I just thought, I'll do this as well. Try and get, I bought into it. Selling coffee. I had two friends up from London. Two big fucking guys, man. Two boxers as well, heavy handed. And uh, we'd done a meeting and ex- uh, exercise for less. The gym that I was doing, we held a big, like, come and try the coffees. This is what we can do. Like, sales pitch shit. And uh, they would go to the hotel. We stopped in at McDonald's and he had a man bag on and uh one of the girls was going look at this poof he's man bagging that i'm going fucking shut up and these two big guys and they're massive they handled it better than i did i was like fuck off and uh bear in mind they've already eaten we're waiting to get our food um so as soon as i'm got my food to turn away she's somebody's used a bit of a naughty word and i've says fuck off you cow she's trying to attack me I've launched my drink, and as I've tried to leave two or three occasions, they've thrown punches. Um, they're punching me, and uh, I eventually get away. But the media being the media, I was a thug, a woman beater, uh, all the bad shit of the day. And then the people start dragging up your past, who you're related to. And it's fucking, you're talking front pages, you're talking middle pages, you're talking this still to my name. But I had the CCTV for five years. And uh, I thought, fuck it, because see, when you know something, you've not done anything wrong, you don't need mm. to prove it. But obviously, as time goes on, people start f- trying to throw mud that you're a woman beater, this and that. Listen, if I'd fucking done it, I said, you know what, I cracked a cunt. And I had every right to fucking fight back then. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm doing well. And um, if somebody hits you, you've got a right to defend. But I've done all I could to try and defend myself. A pal's punched me, she's punched me. I was kicked, I was spat on, I was all the fucking shit of the day. But again, the papers went with that. Thankfully, went to court papers uh the judge says look he's not fucking done anything it's clear as soon as you go forward to somebody you're the instigator um all charges were dropped didn't get as much as a fine but again the papers have still ran with women beat a thug but it still kind of follows you along for five years but i had the video but obviously as my career started to progress i thought you know what it's time now to show people that this is it i never done fuck all do you know what i mean i've been caught worse in life but it's uh that is what it is and it kind of went no, it's kind of, it's out there, and I'm not asked about that. I was never asked about it anyway, but when you start doing well, people say, oh, there's a son article, there's a woman beater, this and that, but the clips on my Instagram, it's on my YouTube, James English clears his name, it's clear that not once did I throw a punch, not once did I pull hair. I try to defend myself with putting my hands up and holding the girl back, and like I say, it's handbags. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's fuck all, it's nothing, but again, the papers like to roll with the negatives, and that's when I started to realise I don't really like this either how people because people destroy lives through articles as well it wasn't that extreme but it's still enough to think oh he's a fucking woman beater which i'm not all it takes is a few of those clickbaity horrible nasty words yeah. taglines and all of a sudden you say it enough on repeat people start believing it it's, yeah. it's indoctrination but yeah i'm glad you've cleared that up thank you the good stuff yeah anything goes with james english mm-hmm. the light bulb moment what happened just decided i'm going to do a podcast nobody's done them in scotland not many people were doing it in england and I thought, you've always had a gift of the gab, James. Bear in mind, I'm coming up to 34, 35, 34. Um, it's not as if my time was running out, but I started seeing the world differently again. I started seeing different patterns. I started understanding, okay, consistency. It says you've ra- relapsed twice before. You've done nine months, you've done two years. You need to stay on the path, because when you stay on the path, big things happen. 
I says, I'm going to start a podcast. I can talk about my journey, my addictions. Um, but even before the first podcast, I thought, I'm going to be the biggest in the world here. I'm going to go all out. I'm going to be the biggest in the world. It's going to take time. It's going to take dedication. But it's something that I'm willing to do. I'm not going out in this life as a fucking failure. Had an interview with uh, Big Stephen, uh, radio host, Glasgow. And that was my first podcast. And I just remember, okay, I found the lane. I enjoyed it. I felt good after it. And ever since then, five years ago, I've just never looked back. So you loved it instantly? Just loved it. I loved the interaction. I loved Any the nerves? talking. Yeah, nervous. I still get nervous from time to time, but um, I just know you either fight against the nerves, cower away, or you just own it and you just fucking fly high with them because everybody gets nervous. Mm. People watching podcasts, they won't appreciate just how, because when I watch them back compared to being right in the thick of them, they're, they're intense, isn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're yeah. intense. Yeah. I mean, we've got three cameras, one, two, three, four, four big lights in our faces and we're talking about the most intimate stuff yeah. that's, that's ever happened to us. It's it's heavy. This is the future, but this is what everybody's... It's interesting as well. So when I started that journey, I thought, okay, I never thought about staying in Glasgow. I never thought, I thought, venture out, go England. And it felt good when you're travelling. And listen, I was skint. I had no money. I had to tap my mum some money for fuel. I had to sleep in the car sometimes just to fucking get by because we'd try and squeeze in two or three interviews around that area of Leeds, Manchester, because I couldn't afford to go home and then come back down. So we'd try and squeeze in two or three in that day. So I've got something because I would release one every Sunday at 10 a.m. And uh, the wheels just started moving. Again, you still get hate with success comes hate, comes negativity. People shouting, he's a grass, he's this, he's that. Oh, what the fuck you talking about? I've never grassed anybody in my life. And, uh, I'm only fucking interviewing people, but hate comes with that. But then I'd already tasted that through the gym and then I chased, tasted it through glow. And then it just, the hate just started bouncing off me. Mm. I just started, fuck that man. Nobody stops me in my life, but me, nobody fails, but me, people would write negative comments. He's been in the jail. He's a woman beater. He's done this. He's done that. He's related to this. Again, it just all bounced off me. I became fearless with it. I started doing two a week. And I don't fuck this, man. I'm going to be the biggest in the UK. I'm, I'm, there's no stopping me. I'm going to take it to levels that only people could dream of. I'm, it's not just about podcasting. It's to show people a blueprint of making changes to better in their life, to kick on and understanding. You don't need to just settle of your life. No matter if you're in your teens or your 70s, you can always do something new. So bear in mind, I'm in the middle of my 30s. It was tough as well, though. You're constantly trying to get the views and try to become an interviewer bear in mind i've never done any sort of media training i'm just a scottish guy thick accent i'm trying to slow that down not swear as much try not over 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 talk and get excited as well because you're sitting next to a guest that you like then i calmed it all down and my job is easy do you know what i mean people think oh he's a great listener it's not just because i've ran out of shit to say i can only guide the story and let the guest talk and then it becomes easy for me just a simple why or a how they can then set them off for another 10-minute tangent. And then I started to understand people. Then I started to understand every single emotion. Every one of my podcasts is all one take. There's no notes. There's no bullshit. So I look them straight in the eye. Boom, we're on. That's it. That's me switching on. For that moment there, I'm switched on. There's no pain. There's no misery up here. All the pain, all the pressure goes away. So as soon as I'm in that interview, I'm invested. When interview is done, fuck me, it's a different ball game. You're drained, you're taking in the emotions, you're hearing people being abused, you're hearing kids getting killed, you're hearing fucking some dark stuff, murders, prisons, quite dark, do you know what I mean? But mm. my job is not to glorify the guest. My job is not to pass judgment. My job is not to try and bring them down and 
people shout challenge on this and that. That's not my job. My job is to let people tell things from their side of the story, no matter what they are, no matter what they believe in, no matter what religion, no matter what colour they are, what age they are, no matter what they've done in their life, my job is just to let them tell their story. Whether they're bullshitting or not, that's down to them. People will find that out. Whether you you don't believe in what they say, that's good, that's down to you. My job is only to guide that so you've got an understanding of the guest. And that's what then makes it easier for people to get a picture. Because there's so many guests come on that people don't like and end up going, he's actually all right. When you understand humans, you understand we're not bad people, we're good. We just do bad shit in certain circumstances just fuck us up in life and I always say this but every gangster every bad man I've interviewed or every prisoner everyone was bullied or abused when they were younger what chance you got when you fucking feel as if you've no hope or no life or no understanding and a lot of these people come on and, and want to change as well and I respect that that's why I'll give the majority of people a chance some people come on they're fucking idiots I'm not daft I know a lot of people around the UK who's I've got a lot of big connections all around the world now but people my job is only to guide the story it's not a past judgment or challenge or shout. That's not what my podcast is about. It's about anything goes. Come on, tell your story and have some fucking fun with it and we'll take it on a journey. And like I say, it's been a journey, all right. Did you always plan that it was going to be gangsters, porn stars? Yeah. Crime sales. I was doing other podcasts and the biggest hitters was the crime. Right. So I stayed in that lane because I'm a nobody. I've not got the big media following. I'm a kid from Glasgow. I was in a crack den fucking five years ago. I've not got the money behind me um, I've not got all that. I'm in my mum's house with two fucking cameras, a couple of microphones. That was it. So my work has been a steady progress from day one to now. I never had that luxury. I, I had to get the criminals. And then once you start getting other criminals, you start building a relationship with them. They get you the other criminals and then it just works like wildfire. I became a trusted interviewer. Nobody ever get fucked over. Not to this fucking day. That's not what I'm about. Everybody's got an element of trust. Because I struggle with trust. But if you can build a rapport, build some trust and go, you know what? He's actually decent. So I built up this network. My phone book, the names that I've got in my phone book would fucking blow people's minds. Not just gangsters. I'm talking about some serious people. Some fucking mega names. World A-list names from the... The radio host to now, it's been unbelievable, but it was just all more consistency, learning my craft. Do not break, James. Do not fold. No matter what gets through at you. And I've proved that over the years. I've never broke. I've never folded. Sometimes it gets to you and a lot of pressure comes with it because you want to succeed and then you start making a living from it. But the first three years I was in the red, I was in debt with it, traveling and trying to get podcasts. I never stayed one dimensional in Glasgow. I traveled. Went to fucking Liverpool, went to Leeds, went to Manchester, Newcastle, and then it's went to London. Now I've got a studio in London, and then I've went to America. It's just been consistent progression to raise the bar and show, man, this guy's actually fucking doing it. But it's just been a, a journey that I've loved. I've found a lane that I've loved. I believe now this is my passion. I believe this is what my calling is for, what you like to call it. But it's just opened so many doors. I've met some amazing people like yourself. It's just the people that I've met, and you get excited sometimes, but sometimes you forget when you're sitting across from these people that, fuck me, I used to watch you on the TV 10 years ago, mm. and now you're sitting here on my podcast. Like, it fucking feels good. I can, the kids are looked after now, I've retired, my mum. Like, the fucking journey just doing a podcast has been unbelievable, but I believed in it. For the very first one, I knew this is it. The first time in my life I felt something. I felt important because I was off it all again. I'd tasted what it was like to be off it. Then I found a lane. I thought, I ain't fucking backing down. I never broke for any interview, no matter what guest it is, no matter what criticism comes with it. Not once did I fucking break. Not once will I ever break, no matter how successful I become. And again, through the years as I got successful, I've rejected six-figure deals. 
six-figure deals from alcohol and gambling. Mm. Not a fucking problem. I thought about it. I go, man, I'll go home. That set the kids up for a bit. I can invest in that. I thought about it. But part of me thought, fuck that, don't sell yourself because bigger things will happen and sure as fuck the halves. Well, they, they are happening. Did you see the interview where Rob Moore interviewed Chris Eubank and he was really tricky? He obviously wasn't in a good place, but he was confrontational. He weren't playing ball. You couldn't steer him. You couldn't guide him. In fact, you couldn't even reason with him. Uh, and I just watched that interview and thought, fair play to this Rob guy. I like Rob. Yeah. I thought, fair play. You are dealing with Chris Eubank there, a mm. very serious individual in his prime. Did you see the interview? No, I've seen, I've seen some clips out on his, uh, Rob's Instagram. It's really worth watching. It's worth watching. And when you said you never buckled uh, with a guest, it just took me there. It was awkward, but he'd done a great job. Like, I tip my hat to Rob Moore for, for what he'd done there. I'd love to have a chat with him about that. Give me a couple of most memorable guests. I've got to see you, because I'm sitting across you from haven't you. Got to, but, yeah, but yeah. I'm honest, yeah. Me um, excluded. It's tough, mate, because I fucking loved them all. Mm. Dark, funny, kind. There's like, it's, it's such a hard question because I couldn't just pick one because I feel as if I picked one or two, I'd be discrediting the other 390-odds because I've loved everyone and everybody that's come on my show has changed my life. Mm. Everybody, that's why I owe everybody something because it, people are giving me their time for free. I'm creating a story and building a business through people's stories. People are gaining from it as well with the exposure they get. Plus they're getting to see a fucking top quality interview and also builds their platforms. What they do with that after that is down to them. I'm straight on to the next interview. I release two a week. So for me, anybody that comes on, I owe something to them. Every fucking guest, every time I hit a goal or a milestone, I always thank the viewers, I thank the, I thank the guests first for coming on and telling their story because without them it doesn't work and I also thank the viewers. Every time I'll put 100 million or 250 million or we just had half a billion views and downloads like it's just we've got to thank these people. People are investing their time into me. People are giving me their time to tell their story. They're trusting me. A lot of first timers are coming on and they're nervous and we take it on a journey and they go I fucking love that. It's like therapy sessions. I'm gaining so much from it. Do you know what I mean? Not just financially, but spiritually, emotionally. I'm learning more about myself. I cringe watching myself back, but it's just all part of the business and I wouldn't fucking change it. Have you taken any stories home with you that have kept you awake? Oh, yeah, all the time, man. Like Barbara O'Hare, the hospital, kids getting abused, doctors abusing them, MK Ultra, like experimenting on the kids. The kids, um, Britain's most evil mum. Fucking, there's just, there's so many, there's so many hard-hitting stories. Um, Della Wright, abused for six. It's just, you're hearing these horror stories, like it's a lot to take in, but I've got to do it, it's my job, I've got to stay focused. Like, 400 interviews and I've never, I've never shed a tear, ever. I've got to stay on, on the job, you know what I mean? Because if I fold, I think the whole interview would fold. So I need to be strong to, I'll go home and it'll play in my mind. Listen, I'm all for my kids and my family now and I'm in a place where I'd do anything for them. I was a lost soul for many years. I was always in and out of life, but now I'm a dad. Now I understand life and what it's all about. Everything else is second to what family's first, no matter where I am in life. Have Every, you cried off the camera? Yeah, you'll have little moments, certain songs, or certain smells, but that's not just the stories that I'm hearing. That's just, I think, through life. 
Because also with my dad would have been here because he would have loved this life. He would have loved mm. meeting everybody. He would have loved fuck me, watching me in the telly. That's what it was about. Do you know what I mean? Like he never seen that. He chased all the all the wrong things in life when I had everything I already had, and that was family. And if I was in that position to be a football player, they would have loved that life and seen me spread my wings. He, my dad would have seen the man that he knew I could have been. But listen, that's the cards I've been dealt. I live with it. Like I say, there's people who's had worse experiences in me in life. I've just used my experiences as a tool of that's not happening again. The only person that fucks up, like I keep saying, is me. I'm not breaking. I'm not folding. Only You still get the gambling thoughts, the drink thoughts, the drug thoughts. But I know if I do it, I've not got another recovery in me. If I was to ever do that, I'm done. If you... I mean, I know people can't... I choose to be addicted to this. But if you know you've got an addictive personality, then you should really be choosing where you put your energy in. And if you're going to become addicted to something, at least have some element of control over it, which it seems to me like you're doing. You, yeah. you, 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 we call it a journey. You're addicted to the journey that you're on, but the, the end result doesn't result in a come down with suicidal thoughts. Yeah. It ends happy. Mm-hmm. And you're still chasing, aren't you? Yeah, still, you're you're still a chaser. Yeah, that's still another form of addiction. It's just a mm-hmm. healthier one. Nobody's getting hurt. I'm a great dad. I'm a great brother a great friend now <clears throat> i choose my friends wisely i'm not a people pleaser anymore i can say no and um, i'll still help people if i feel as if they deserve it and i feel as if they're worthy of getting help because there's a lot of sharks out there i've experienced it many times but for me it's it's just trying to live a clean healthier life try to be as honest as i can be i, told, I still talk shit i've still got that daft james in me i still like to carry on me and you laugh about the stupid shit but that's just, again, another little form of defence because our life is serious. We're trying to create businesses. We're trying to provide the family. We're trying to do the right in life. I'm trying to fucking hit away every addiction that I've had every day. Not as much every day, but you, the thoughts come Christmas time, summertime, beer gardens. Christmas is tough as well. Everybody's out, Christmas night's out. But I just go to a night out and I smoke bomb after two hours. I go home, maybe get a bit of food. And I just sit myself, sit with me and my dog, big yogi. Beat all that, your life's going great, but it doesn't necessarily make me happy every day. I still struggle. I still have really down days where I think fucking tired today. But I know we've only got a short period of time on this planet to achieve something. I was always chasing to be a tough man when I was a weak man. But now everything I'm doing, everything right, staying out of trouble, trying to be a good guy, that's a tough guy. I know billionaires who are miserable. So if you're working a 95 job, that's okay as well. If you're providing for your family, that's okay as well. As long as you're trying to do the right things, just don't bullshit yourself. Don't fucking falter. If you're drinking, taking drugs, gambling, go and get help. Yeah, 100%. Amen to that. If you could watch only one person for the foreseeable future, would you choose Andrew Tate or Jordan Peterson? It's a tough one because my, I, I know Big Andy well, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to say, well, when Andrew's promoting about the mindset and masculinity, I, was, I would go for... I would have to go for Andrew when that mindset. I don't like the multiple girls. I don't like all that shit. I don't like the flash cars and stuff as well because I believe that's on illusion. I can have all them, so it's not as if I'm saying it because I've not got it. I can have all that life. and I'm not a flash guy on social media. I drive a nice car. I've got a nice watch, but that's not what it's all about because it makes people unworthy or inadequate when everybody's got something in them because there's people out there who can still have an amazing life and, and not have much. There's people out there who do, the people who feed the homeless, 
these people are saving lives every fucking day, but they've not to get a pot of piss in themselves. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't need that private life lifestyle to make as if make out as if you're doing something. But if I was to pick between the two, it's got to be Andrew all day long. Two more questions then. Time, man. What does the future hold for you? Be number one on the planet. Be the number one interviewer on the planet, whether that's doing podcasts or whatever it is, and uh, and leaving a blueprint for people to make changes. That's important for me to... Just because I'm doing this life, it doesn't mean I was probably more happier sometimes fucked up, even though my life is going good, because with this life becomes extra pressure, becomes extra hate, becomes more responsibilities. When you're in that life of misery, you have no responsibilities because the only person you care about is yourself. Now I care about other people. Now I care about my kids, my mum, my dog, my sister, my brother-in-law, my nephew. I want to make sure that we're all okay. I'm trying to set things up so we all eat well from the same table. But Could you see yourself shifting over into journalism? I don't think so, mate. I've been offered money for, for TV and radio and I've rejected just like the... I just feel I don't want to lose myself. Whatever I'm doing is working. Mm. And they couldn't afford me, if I'm honest. They don't get the numbers that I get. TV's failing. TV's... A, as an old business podcast is a future i was thinking more of a i think you'd make a really really good independent journalist yeah well i've got my media company i do my own documentaries i've got a couple of big documentaries coming 2024 i've kind of fell away from that because i've seen the success the podcast was coming i've seen the lane and i've seen the money that can be made from it and i've stuck to it but i've not faltered but i still miss the documentary feel i miss the ayahuasca and the homeless documentary i miss that creating something like, we don't go off scripts. I go off this, where to film, what get, who to get on. Like every guest I book, I book all my guests. I book all my travel. I don't write the question. I just, everything's here. It's a mad mind. Um, but it works. And I, I don't like to change it because it's. Uh, I just think about levelling up. And that's where I took the steps to America to then prove that I'm one of the best, if not the best. And, and you're going to pursue America? Yeah, I'm going to take over it. People say, oh, but you've got criminal convictions. My convictions were never for um, drugs or serious assaults or murder. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. These were fucking driving offences. Plus, it was over 10 years ago. So people think, oh, it's not, I, I tell the truth, there's not, nothing to, you know what I mean? So people are weird that way as well. Because I was in America, people, oh, yeah, this and that. But America let you in with convictions. As long as it's not fucking murder, drugs, I think fraud. So I'm sweet. And they're going to like you over there. Yeah. They're going to like you over there a lot. Yeah, I just went there. Yeah, we've done 15, 16 amazing interviews, which is going to be released. And for me, that's the first time in a while I felt good again. I felt as if it was always on the back burner to go in America, but lockdown kind of fucked that and it opened up again in July. So I thought, okay, that's time now to pull the trigger and prove your worth. But again, who am I, who am I proving to? Nobody fucking cares. Oh, I thought I was the number one interviewer in the world from the first episode. This is my belief system. People go, oh, you cocky bastard, this and that. You're not. Angie's better than you. That's your opinion. My opinion, I'm the best on this planet. It's as simple as that. So no matter what anybody says, that's down to you. I believe in me. When you're low self-esteem and low confidence for so fucking many years, find a lane, believe in yourself again, why try and crush somebody? Do you know what I mean? If you're not going to say anything nice, don't say fuck all this at all. But for me, I love the negative shit as well. That's why I thrive the most. Chaos, negativity, try to prove people wrong. It's not the right thing to do. But it's kept me in good stead to keep raising the bar to show people, okay, I'll sit back. But I don't, I don't really. You know yourself. Like we have deep conversations, but my cards are still kept close to the chest because action's just important. Speaking it, and I'll prove it, and then I'll go. Okay, I told you so.
I can vouch for that as well. I won't hear certain things for sometimes months. And then you say, and I thought, I suspected he was up to something. (laughs) (laughs) I suspected something was going on there. And then bam, until you've done it, you won't announce it. Mm -hmm. So final question then, because everyone knows what you do. Who is James English? Um, It's a good question, but I don't know. I feel as if I'm misunderstood as well. I'm still trying to work that well that out as well, if I'm honest, Liam. Um, but the things I'm doing now, I believe I'm a good guy. I try and do the right things. I'm still out for myself, which I always tell you. I'm out for myself to provide for me and my family. That works first. That's my number one plan. But it's just I'm a man. I still miss it as well. I'm still quite a private guy. Like I get off to, I offer to do podcasts every other day. I don't because I get embarrassed as well. Sometimes I don't feel as if I'm at that level to give my story. But I feel as if I'm at that stage now where I can, I've got a bit of inspiration to leave because I've got, I've left the blueprint. But for me, I'm still trying to work it out. I'm still confused with it. Sometimes I feel as if what I'm doing is just a big lie, a big fraud. I don't feel good enough. I feel like a failure. I look at my life and think you're just pretending because you're still not happy. But it's just, it's a confusing thing as well, life. Nobody's got it figured out. And I always tell people this, no matter if you're a billionaire or a homeless man, or who you are, everybody I've interviewed, the one thing everybody's got in common is that nobody's got a clue what the fuck is going on. Just find your path. Do the right thing for you and your family. And that's it. Everything else becomes second nature. A lot of people are lost through mental health and addiction. You don't need to be that way. I just want people to know that you can change. And for me, is to try and leave a blueprint for people to make changes. For the guy who I was, to what I'm doing now, it's totally night and day. But I do struggle sometimes. I do still battle with the demons up here. But I just know I'm strong enough to keep kicking on and just try to be a better person. I still get angry. I still get upset. I still tell people to fuck off, but that's life. But for me, stay focused, try and stay blessed, appreciate what I've done and just fucking keep raising the bar. Well, for me, I think you're a heavyweight motivator. I think you're a huge inspiration. I'm a fan as well as a friend and I hope you... Don't just conquer America. And I mean this with every fibre of my being. I hope you conquer the world. And I can't thank you enough for coming on today, man. Yeah, my brother. It's been I'll always love pleasure. you. I love you, bro. Listen, I'm proud of you as well, man. Keep smashing it. Likewise. I know you're at the start of your Likewise. journey, but you know I'm always at the sidelines. Any time you ever need me, I'm there, brother. As I am for you, man. Cheers, brother. I loved you. Appreciate you, it. Mate.